South Texas Gardening with Bob Webster is on the air. Talk to Bob now. 210-599-5555. And a very good morning. Uh, another warm morning. If you believe the weatherman, another morning or two and we're going to get away from this uh, stuff. It's it's above 80 degrees out there here in San Antonio. Wasn't quite that chilly when I left uh, the hill country, but or wasn't quite that hot. But I tell you, it's uh, summer just stretches on and on. I think I heard earlier this week that we had had 17 days over 105 degrees. I hate to think of how many days over 100 we've had, but 17 over 105, that's that's just not typical. That just doesn't usually happen here. And it uh, <laughs> looks like a little hope out there on the horizon that, We'll be down in the 90s and then maybe in the 80s, uh, nights in the 60s. I just hope it doesn't go back up into the hundreds. <laughs> Choking with the engineer before we went on the air. We, we, he, he thinks summer is truly over. I'm not sure, but uh, anyway, who knows? Uh, we've got lots to talk about. Uh, from what I understand, we've pretty much got an open bank of phone lines, so if you want to get in early... Be a real good time to call that number, 210-599-5555. Get you on quickly, no long waits, and uh, you can go back to bed. You can get your day started, or uh, you can just lie there and listen, whatever suits you. Glad to have you out there this morning and every Saturday and Sunday mornings. And uh do have a lot of things to talk about. Uh, the You know, the calendar says that we are getting into fall planting season, and I think you're... And I'm calling it too late on big fruited tomatoes. Uh, cherry tomatoes, yeah, you can still plant cherry tomatoes, but realistically, here we are. What is today? Ninth of September, something like that. It's going to take those tomatoes probably 30 to 45 days to get up to the size that they really want to bloom. Now, I'm not worried about things freezing. You could, you could plant any kind of tomato you wanted, and it probably is going to get a pretty good size before it freezes. But the problem is, once the nights start to cool down, large-fruited tomatoes stop setting fruit. That's why I've been harping at you since the middle of July to get those large-fruited tomatoes planted. Now, the cherries, they don't pay nearly as much attention to nighttime temperatures, so uh, you could still get away with planting some cherry tomatoes, probably still harvest a fair number before <laughs> freezing weather finally does get here. But uh, a lot of other things... If it does indeed get away from the 100-degree stuff this next week, uh, going to be time that you can think about planting your broccoli, your cauliflower, your cabbage. Uh, Brussels sprouts, another one of those things that you really need to get in the ground pretty early. Broccoli and cauliflower, they're going to produce for you. You're going to be eating things in 45 days or so, but not Brussels sprouts. Brussels sprouts can easily take, oh, 100 to 130 days to produce that head of, as my grandmother used to say, little cabbages. So they've got to go in and have time to grow up and produce before the weather starts getting warm, really warm again next spring. Otherwise, you won't have little tight heads. You'll have kind of a, oh, you know how cabbage can be kind of leafy or it can be kind of a tight head. Well, that's the same way it is with Brussels sprouts. They can form a uh, a fairly tight head or 
If the weather gets warm, they'll be a little bit more loose and open. Still have the same good flavor, but just not that same good crunch. I, I do love putting some Brussels sprouts on the grill. And, uh, well, let's still get started about that. A person could get hungry this early in the morning. <laughs> still looking at an hour, several hours before breakfast. But, uh, anyway, give me a call and we'll talk about what you want to. You know the numbers, 210-599-5555. Um, I should also mention on flowers, there are a lot of things that I think it is still uh, too early to plant, really. I wouldn't be putting snapdragons in the ground quite yet. If it does cool down just a little bit, petunias are a great fall flower. Petunias will bloom like mad up until the weather gets really cold. Then they stop blooming, but they continue to grow through the winter months. Then they put on uh, lots of flowers once again in the spring. So uh, there's something I'm going to be talking about planting pretty soon. Dianthus will be the same way. Snapdragons, uh, Johnny Jump Ups, and especially Pansies. Yeah, we're going to put those off for a little while longer. I could go on and on, but it uh, looks like we have Clint and Carlos and uh, Tony ready to talk. So your questions are more important to me than anything else. So good morning, Clint. Good morning. How's it going? Oh, it's just rolling along there. It's uh, another warm one, but hopefully that's going to come to an end pretty shortly. Did you just say we can still get the, uh, what you call it, in the ground, the Brussels sprouts? Uh, oh, yeah. Yeah, I think, uh, especially if we get away from this 100-degree stuff, then uh, it'll be time to plant. And, and the reasons you want to get your Brussels sprouts in you know, early is because they take a lot longer to produce. I mean, you can grow three crops of broccoli in the time it's going to take your Brussels sprouts to get up to producing that one big head that we like to consume. So uh, it's one that as soon as the little plants are available, and I'm told that it's going to be in the next couple of weeks, as soon as you see them available, hoping that we don't go back to 100-plus temperatures, um, if we're in the 80s uh, and 90s, and yeah, I go ahead and get those in the ground along with your broccoli and cabbage and cauliflower. Uh, way too early for spinach, but uh, you can start planting leaf lettuce. You can start planting chard. They're, we're just you know a couple of weeks away from uh, really getting to be able to put a lot of stuff in the ground for the cool season. What about kale? Kale, I wouldn't hesitate to plant kale. Once we're out away from the hundreds, if we're even down in the low 90s, uh, kale will do fine. Uh, keep in mind, there are a lot of different ones. My favorite has to be what happens to be what they call dino kale or Toscano kale. Uh, there are just so many different things to do with that. But even just your leafy kales, um, once, we're, once we're down in those days, we're in the highs or in the upper 80s, low 90s. Yeah, I wouldn't hesitate to plant kale or chard. Okay, good deal. On uh, sulfur, I need to add sulfur to the soil, and it seems like there's like three or four different types. Soil sulfur, dusting sulfur, wettable sulfur. Does it really matter when you're trying to boost your soil uh, soil sulfur levels? Um, it depends on how you're going to apply it. If you're going to, you know, be actually working in the soil, chisel it or till it, which I'm really not real fond of in most cases, no, you can put almost anything. If you're going to do basically a surface application and let it, so to speak, make its way into the ground, 
Then uh, the seven, uh, then the sulfur fifty W uh, wettable. No, it's more than fifty even. Uh, just wettable sulfur is going to be a lot easier because it's a very fine sulfur, and it does go into suspension. No sulfur is going to melt. It's not going to go into solution. But wettable sulfur goes into suspension much more easily. Gets carried a lot deeper into the soil much more quickly. So uh, that's going to be the only difference. Soil sulfur or dusting sulfur. Either one of those, if you put it on the surface of the ground, I would work it in lightly, uh, depending on what you're going to plant, whether it's going to be things in rows, you know, like a crop of fall beans or maybe snow peas, something like that. You'll do a fair job of working it in just in the process of planting. But if you want to do the whole garden, uh, you can certainly do that with any of them. But like I say, if you run it to really get into the soil deeply, quickly, your wettable sulfur is going to be your best choice. Wettable sulfur, good deal. Uh, now, I'm trying to lower my pH a tad. Uh, soil level came back way too high. Those little handheld soil, pH soil testers, are they okay, or you want the one that actually has the test strips? It depends on how accurate you want to be. Um, the the and, and you don't have to get the expensive hydrion paper that's going to read it down to, uh, you know, one uh, less than one-tenth of a point. Um but uh, the the probe types, no, those are not going to do much for you. Uh, they tend to measure electroconductivity, EC, rather than really have a lot to do with uh, exact pH. So, if I were if I were looking to do it, I'd I'd get some basically just litmus paper. Um, but the thing about dropping the pH is the about the the principal benefits you gain from it is that it makes nutrients more soluble. The plants can get to them more easily. And if you're growing something really susceptible to cottony root rot, like apple trees or pears or things like that, it does greatly reduce the frequency of cottony root rot. But it's uh, uh, it, it has some negatives, too. Sulfur is very hard on beneficial fungi, including your mycorrhizal fungi. So you certainly don't want to overuse it. Uh, I think, you know, better sources of acidity are humic acids, fulvic acids, things like that. But if you're if you're really on a budget and if you're doing a fairly large area, then sulfur is probably going to give you the most bang for the buck. Sulfur gets converted into uh, sulfuric acid, which is, you know, what's going to lower your pH. Okay, that was one of the deficiencies also in my soil, so... Well, keep in mind that pretty much every time you water, you're going to be putting alkaline water back on the soil. So uh, that's the benefit of getting, you know, a lot of organic material built up in the soil. Uh, you get a buffering action, which means the, temp- the uh, pH doesn't swing widely back and forth. It stays fairly stable, and that's what organic material in the soil does for you. Uh, just applying sulfur to soils that have no organic material in them, you'd be doing it over and over because the effects, like I say, get neutralized every time we start putting alkaline water on there. But um, if, and, and as long as you're building, building organic material, you're creating humic acids, you're creating things that naturally acidify the soil. And uh, to me, that's much more important than necessarily reading a pH scale. 
Uh, seven of horses neutral, and it's a logarithmic scale, so uh, pH of 8 is 10 times more alkaline, and pH of 9 is 100 times more alkaline, pH of 10 is 1,000 times more alkaline than neutral, so um, uh, the numbers can tell you some things, but don't live and die by the numbers. There's a lot more to the story than that. that. Good deal. Okay, well, I should appreciate your time. Always a pleasure talking to you, Clint. You get out and have a wonderful weekend and do that rain dance and that cool weather dance. And uh, Carlos is next in line. Good morning, Carlos. Hey, good morning, Bob. Good morning, sir. Uh, I have a problem that many people have during the summer. My grass is dead. <laughs> hmm. Yes, a lot uh, of us are. A lot of us. All of us are looking at brown grass. Some of us are looking at dead grass. Yeah, now I have a combination of San Agustin and Bermuda. Mm-hmm. I think the Bermuda can come back. I don't know about the San Agustin. That no. I think Sa- yeah, St. Augustine's good. probably it's probably gone. Uh, you want to get down on your hands and knees and look at the runners. If the runners on the St. Augustine are still green, it can come back. If the runners have turned brown, then it's done in. Uh, Bermuda, on the other hand, will almost always come back, and it'll come back unless it gets really chilly. Your Bermuda's going to come back pretty quickly. You give it adequate nutrition, and if you haven't fertilized in the past 90 days, I'd fertilize as soon as you can. Uh, you give that Bermuda a little bit of a nutrition, and it's gonna, you're gonna have a nice green lawn again before it gets, uh, super cold. Uh, that is, you know, assuming that the, that the temperature goes down a bit and that you can provide plenty of water. Uh, but your Bermuda should be back strong. I'm not worried about it, but your St. Augustine, there's a lot of dead St. Augustine out there. Right. You, I think you mentioned before that, that Bermuda uh, has triggers and other bugs, which mm-hmm. I don't want in my backyard. Right. Uh, anything that we can do to keep the bugs down on the Bermuda? There are, but let me tell you, as hot and dry as it is right now, there aren't any triggers out there. Chiggers like some moisture, and uh, if we get into wetter, cooler fall weather, uh, you may have some chiggers come back. And we we repel them. We don't really kill them, but we make them go elsewhere with cedar oil. You can buy it under the name of Cedar Repel or Cedar Side. Um, any good cedar oil spray will pretty much run off the chiggers and run off any other undesirable bugs. But... Uh, Right now, as dry as things are, I, I'd sure be putting emphasis into water and fertilizer before I worried about putting out the cedar oil. Okay. And nothing we can do about the uh, San Agustine other than wait till the spring and get some sod, maybe? Well, if we, well, not if, but when we get back, uh, to more reasonable weather, when we get back to a place that you can water freely, uh, you can plant St. Augustine in all except the very coldest, worst part of the winter. Uh, there's no reason that in October or even into November, if you want to replant some St. Augustine, you should certainly should be able to, but you will have to be able to water it. 
Uh, Saws has lots of water here in San Antonio. They're going to charge you a fortune for it just because they can. But um, in the hill country, we're until we get some very substantial rainfall, just about everybody's going to be on uh, kind of water restrictions that would make it hard to uh, establish St. Augustine. But uh, if you've got a deep enough bank account to pay your water bill, <laughs> you can re- you can replant your St. Augustine as soon as it cools off a little bit. And there's nothing to say you have to go in and lay it solid sod. You can buy some of those squares and chop them up in little pieces about three or four inches square and kind of put them in in a checkerboard fashion. And you water and fertilize, you'll have a nice St. Augustine lawn again pretty quickly. But uh, don't, don't do it until you, number one, can find good quality sod, and number two, that you are sure that you're going to have the water and that you're going to be in town to water it. Uh, a lot of people go out of town on vacation when the weather's as severe as it has been. Uh, they come back to, you know, a lot of damage from uh, the kid that forgot to water like he promised to uh, take care of your yard yeah, right. for you. But if you're going to be here, there's certainly no reason to wait until spring. The other option is we can plant ryegrass for the winter months. Uh, they call it, my favorite, they call it perennial rye, but it really isn't. It'll last until next June or July. But if you just want to have a nice green lawn out there for kids or grandkids or pets or whatever... Come along about first of October. Uh, you can you can throw out some rye seed. You keep it watered. You'll have a green lawn in two weeks' time, and uh, that'll buy you some time before you have to go out and go to all the work of replanting your St. Augustine. So I would always keep that out there as an option. You can have a beautiful green lawn, and it does not hurt to overseed Bermuda because it's gonna it's gonna die back when it gets real cold anyway. So uh, just realize that's another option. Uh, $10 of rice seed will cover a lot more ground than $10 worth of St. Augustine sod. Hmm. Okay. Uh, one more thing. You have recommended the use of compost, spread compost. Absolutely. Uh, excuse um, me. Go sure. ahead. Yeah, there used to be a, uh, a company that had a big, dumpster that will come to your house and spread it uh i can't remember the name and there there is a company uh abc pest and lawn yeah yeah, yeah and it, that's it and and they were the ones that would come and actually blow the compost on your yard it's a <clears throat> machine kind of like they use to blow uh, insulation up in attics uh the problem was the only compost that goes through their machine well is the biosolids compost, and I'm not a big fan of biosolids. Out in the country on, you know, cropland and things like that, that's one thing. But uh, I just, not not just because it's human waste, uh, but uh, that doesn't bother me. It's all the different things that are in our waste system these days, from the insecticides, the pesticides of all sorts, the hormones, the chemicals, um biosolids aren't aren't the same as they were 50 years ago and i just that's not what i'd be putting on the grass and unfortunately that was all that uh abc could uh, get to go through their blower now lots of people don't mind uh, one of our employees here at the nursery gosh he had them come out every spring and every fall and he had one of the prettiest yards you would ever see but uh I, I honestly don't know. That machine was uh, was uh, a little expensive to maintain. ABC's a, a great company. They're, 
we had an extremely good experience with them uh, with some rodent control with some raccoons who were ripping off our siding and getting into our attic and boy did they take care of it promptly and efficiently but Anyway, they're a good company. You can always call and ask if they're still blowing the compost. And I'd love to hear back from you. I, um, I, I talk to them periodically, but I just haven't asked that question. But they were the ones that, uh, you know, that, that actually would spread the compost for you. Um, otherwise, just, you know, do it a little bit at a time. You kill yourself trying to do a big yard all in one afternoon. But, uh, oh, yeah. uh, friends, I know have, uh, tended to buy a case of certain adult beverages and then invite a number of friends over without telling them what they were doing and put a rake in their hands and, uh, but you know, throw some ribs on the grill and get some suds. You just might, the old story about Tom Sawyer whitewash, getting his friends to whitewash the fence, uh, that has modern-day applications as well. <laughs> a- any particular, I don't know, is it brand name of, compost that you if, would, uh, it, if you if you got a big area to do it's a lot cheaper to buy it in bulk in which case you just want to in my opinion avoid biosolids compost just get any good manure compost uh it used to be a company called stone and soil depot they're now called site s-i-t-e site one and uh just tell them you don't want biosolids compost you want manure compost and they'll have a good product for you if you just have a small area to do and don't want to pay delivery charges, uh, you can buy it in bags. And my favorite company to buy it in bags is called Nature's Creation. They bag a really good compost, but uh, because of the cost of bagging and all, it's going to, you know, bulk for bulk, it's it's going to cost you more to buy it in a bag than it is to go out and pick it up in your own pickup or have them deliver it to you in a dump truck. Right. And... The company's called Nature Creation. Nature's Nature's Creation makes a. Uh, I'm, I'm sorry. <laughs> uh, the uh, it's Nature's Guide. Uh, they uh, um, uh, Nature's Creation is a company that used to do it, but it's a uh, um, it's a different company nowadays. But they uh, they make a really really good quality compost, and uh, it is it is Nature's Creation. Nature's Creation compost. I'm just mixing the names up, uh, but Nature's Creation, they, they make an excellent compost, they make an excellent mulch, and most good nurseries are going to carry it. Uh, I mean, Rainbow has it, Millburgers has it, Fanix have it, we have it here at Shades oh, of Green, okay. but uh, Nature's okay. Creation's compost. If you don't have too big an area to do, get their bagged compost, um, but if you're, you know, if you're doing a bunch of it, uh, it's a lot cheaper to buy it in bulk from somewhere like Site 1, and they've got uh, I think seven locations around San Antonio. So, just whatever works better in your world. All right, very good. Thank you so much for all your help. It's my always. my pleasure, all right. Carlos. Have a great day. <laughs> you have a great day and a great weekend. And uh, oh, maybe my brain will wake up in a minute. <laughs> we'll move on to Tony. Uh, good morning, all Tony. Right. And thank you, sir. Good morning, Tony. Good morning, Bob. How you doing? I'm I'm doing. Pretty well, considering the hour of the day. I'll just put it that way. <laughs> How about yourself? Not bad. My question is going to be quick. It's about it's about liriope. I have quite a bit of liriope that I use mm-hmm. uh, some garden beds, and and I don't water it at all. Uh, a lot of it's still green, but then then I said about half of it's brown. 
should I be cutting that bag, pulling out the brown, just waiting to see what happened, or, or what, what should be my approach? I, I You need to start watering at least a little bit. Um, it will it will go a long time before it really starts suffering, but if it gets dry enough, it can die. I would not cut it back at this time of year. I would cut it back sometime over the winter months, but uh, uh, and do not mulch it. It is one plant that you don't want to that you don't want to bury the actual liriope. You want to put if you want to put some mulch compost around it, you can, but you don't ever want to plant the bury those plants any deeper. But uh, no, put away put away the garden shears until about January. Then you can cut it back fairly severely. But uh, even if it's only once every two or three weeks, get out there and give it some water because uh, I don't want it to die. It's going to cost a lot of money to replace it, and uh, you know it's been weeks since we've had a good rain. And if it's starting to turn brown, I'd I'd give it at least one good soaking every two or three weeks. Then what, what about the brown that's out there? Should I pull that brown or just leave it and, like I said, just water it? It depends on how much time and patience you have. You can't very well pull it because you're going to find many of the leaves are green at the bottom, brown up on the top. If you want to get out there with a pair of shears or scissors and literally go through and, uh, you know, and, and cut out the yellow to brown leaves, you can certainly do so. But you see you've got a lot of it. And uh, I don't, you're going to have to have a lot of patience uh, uh, to, to really do it effectively. When we wait until January or even early February and then just cut it down to an inch tall, it comes back out almost immediately. And, uh, you know, you can do more in 10 minutes than you'll do in three hours uh, when you're just cutting the whole thing back. But you don't want to cut it back that severely this time of year. You need to leave as much green as you can just so it can absorb the energy it needs to make it through the winter months. So for now, just water it, maybe put a little fertilizer on it. And if you want to go through and just, you know, blade by blade, trim back some of the ones that look worse, then that's certainly a good thing to do. Okay, I'll, I'll, take, I'll take that approach and just add some water to it. Very good. All well, right. Listen, I, you're sure welcome. I appreciate the call this morning. Thank you, sir. Okay, we've got uh, just about 40 seconds here until news time, so we're not going to try to squeeze another call in. <laughs> I think we do have some open phone lines, as a matter of fact. If you want to want to give me a call and get on hold, the newscast doesn't last very long, and you know the number, 210-599-5555. I'm going to make myself another cup of tea and get wide awake, and I uh, couldn't believe I couldn't say a nature's creation right off the top of my head. Good people, they do make some of the best bag composts and mulches and I'll be telling you a little bit more in a little while about uh, uh, their dry molasses, which is also a very good thing to be putting out uh, this time of year. But uh, right now, still, the main things you need to do uh, are water as appropriate. And if you haven't fertilized in the past 90 days or so, virtually everything in your landscape could use a good shot of fertilizer. We'll be right back with more gardening. South Texas Gardening with Bob Webster is on the air. Talk to Bob now. 210-599-5555. All right, back to gardening on a warm Saturday morning out there. But uh, again, looking at the forecast, keep your fingers crossed. Things are looking uh, like a little improvement is in store over the next few days. Looks like we're going to be talking to Jeanette and Christy and Janet. Let's get straight back to those phone lines. Good morning, Jeanette. Morning, morning. Good morning. It's a beautiful day. 
Beautiful day in the neighborhood. <laughs> <laughs> Just a little on the warm side, but uh, I well, guess most of Texas, us. Are, it's, it, it's summertime yep. in Texas, that's all I can say. <laughs> yeah, I we just have two you. seasons, summer and January. Boy, is that ever. Uh, Bird of Paradise. Do they, does that really come from, uh, um, where, where does it come from? Well, there, there are two different groups of plants that are called Bird of Paradise. Uh, one group, properly called Cecilopenia, uh, grow from seed. They're the big ones with the yellow and orange flowers, uh, real summertime champions. They freeze to the ground in the winter but come back the next spring, even for me up in Bernie. Uh, they do make a lot of seed, and they can throw that seed all over the place. But uh, they they are a plant that will tolerate all the hot sun, tolerates drought pretty well, and blooms largely throughout the summer months. They're, they're winding down a bit, but they've still you've still got some pretty time left on what they call the Mexican bird of paradise. The other bird of paradise, and there are two kinds, called tropical bird of paradise. Uh, there's a white bird of paradise, and then there's the one that has so sort of a combination orange and blue multicolored flower. Those are the ones you see in the floor shop. Those are the ones that last for a month as a cut flower. Uh, they're beautiful blooms. The plants are a little bit old ordinary in their appearance, and they absolutely have to have winter protection. They're not something you plant in the yard. They're something you keep in the pot. So uh, two types, the tropical and the Mexican bird of paradise. And the tropical can, like I say, can be further divided into the uh, really colorful one and the one that's pure white. So uh, do you know which one we're talking about? No, I do not. Um, I, I bought four the other day, and I want—I don't know. Should I put them in the ground now? They're in gallon pots. Okay. Or should I wait a while till it cools down, or would they be happier in the ground, you know? Now, do they have little, uh, fairly fine leaves, uh, leaves that yes, have lots of yes, little leaflets? They do. Okay. Well, then you have the Mexican bird of paradise. I would go ahead and put them in the ground. They're going to be a lot easier to maintain. They've got probably three months' time to get their roots established before it gets really cold. I would put a couple of inches of mulch over them uh, before the real real cold weather hits. But, no, I'd, I'd plant them this afternoon. Okay. And uh, do do you treat them just like any other, uh, like a uh, accent tree, you know? Oh, you treat yeah. How, how do you, how do you, and you, do you? They have full sun, right? That is correct. Absolute full sun. Treat them like you would plumbago or salvia gregii or lantana, any perennial. You're going to need to water pretty regularly at first. Soak them thoroughly. Then, when you stick your finger down and they dry out a knuckle deep, water them thoroughly again. Um, if I were planting, I'd use a little dry fertilizer when I planted, and then after I had them in the ground, I'd be following it up with uh, has to grow or liquid fish or something like that. I'd be feeding them at least once a month. You want to get as many roots on them, and like I say, you still have some time to get some pretty flowers out of them. So uh, um, get, them, get them in the ground as quickly as you can. Plant them about three feet apart. You'll crowd them if you plant them any closer together than that. But uh, they're going to be one of the easiest plants you've ever grown. Just watch your watering and fertilizing, and uh, they're just an easy, easy plant. I don't think I've ever seen an insect problem on Mexican bird of paradise. 
Also, do they bloom just like once, like early summer, or do they bloom all summer, or how? What are the what's the bloom schedule on that? They start blooming late spring, early summer, and uh, their showiest time is going to be oh July and August. They will continue to have some blooms well on into the fall. I would say right now most of them have oh maybe a third as many flowers as they did a month ago. Uh, but they they bloom uh, over at least six months out of the year. And then, oh, did you say water about twice a month? I'm on, just when your fingers stick it in the ground. Uh, yeah, right? stick your finger in when it's dry and knuckle deep. It's time to water again. Uh, that's going to be every couple of days as long as it stays this hot. But um, uh, they're once they're established, they're very drought tolerant. I hate to tell you, the one growing uh, outside my home has gotten watered, I think, twice this whole summer. And it's just sitting there full of blooms. But it's been there for 10 or 15 years. So uh, it's probably got roots all the way to the next county. Oh, my goodness. Well, I I love those plants. I think they're gorgeous. Oh, you're right. You're right. And very, very trouble-free. Like I say, they can spread because when that seed pod pops open, uh, it ejects those seeds with some force. Uh, I've been sitting on my porch, which is about 15 feet away from the plant, and had seeds come all the way up on the porch with me when one of those seed pods decided to burst open. So uh, it's not something unpleasant like hackberry trees, but (laughs) you'll you'll have a small forest of Mexican bird of paradise (laughs) if you want it. You only have to buy it once. I'll put it that way. Do the birds eat the seeds? No. Are there? No, I don't think it. Don't think anything eats the seeds. What I love are the crepe myrtle seeds. You know. Mm Mm-hmm. The birds. the birds do eat crepe myrtle seeds, but they won't touch the Mexican yeah. bird of paradise. Oh, wow. Okay. Well, that was it, and you have a wonderful day. And God you, bless. you do the same, Jeanette. Sure do appreciate you. Thank you. And next in line is Christy. Good morning, Christy. Hey, good morning, Bob. How are you? Off to a good start. How about you? Great. It feels Cool up here in Mason. So, my fingers crossed. We're going to get cooler before you guys do. Well, I'm jealous of that, but it's it's coming, and Mason's a beautiful spot. You certainly had your share of uh, 110 degree weather this summer, so you deserve a little cool a little sooner than some of the rest of us. It's not. So, here's the two plants, two problems. Okay. One of my apple trees doing really well, but had like a a gash. I don't know how it happened. I don't know if one of the the cows she got her horn in there and kind of ripped the stem, right? Uh-huh. So the outer bark is open. So I made some tree goop, put it on, mm-hmm. and by golly, a week later the leaves all turned brown uh-huh. and stuck on the tree. So I washed off the um, tree goop. Said, well, I don't know, maybe something was in there. Sprayed it with no. water and hydrogen peroxide and gave it the sick tree treatment and I don't know. We're gonna it's just gonna have to be wait and see. The tree goop didn't have anything to do with it. It would have turned probably brown whether you'd done it or not. I hate to tell you, I put the tree group back on because that tree suffered, you know, quite a shock. And um, it could have, if deer can get in, the bucks are starting to mark the territory and rub the velvet off their antlers. Uh, did the gash go all the way around the trunk or just on one side? No, it's, it's vertical. It's about three inches vertical, about 
three quarters of an inch wide, but the yeah. deer can't get in there. So the okay. only thing I can think is maybe one of the, because they're uh, pr- twice protected, a fence around and then the cow gate. Uh-huh. That maybe one of the girls got her horns in there, but so, okay, I made extra tree goop. Hopefully it survived in the dish and I'll put that back on. And just be careful that you're not watering too often. Apple trees, they like water, but they like to dry out between waterings. Um, and so water thoroughly when you water, but let that soil get dry a good inch deep between waterings. I've seen a lot of people, you know, killing trees because they're watering them too frequently. And uh, uh, what that apple tree would love is if you would just put your thumb over the end of the hose and just every day, even two or three times a day, spray water up and down the trunk. Uh, and if you wash that tree goop off, put some more back on. But just spray over the limbs because even if it loses a lot of leaves, it will absorb moisture directly through the bark. And that's what's going to help it come out better than anything else you could do. But uh, um, I, it's hard. Except when it gets too hot, I'm worried. I mean, because yesterday the sun if you sat in the shade you were okay but that right. sun was so intense i thought i'll burn it so no, i don't you, water it in the afternoon well it's the water's gonna you know it yesterday yeah. afternoon was a real punishing afternoon but the water's gonna evaporate quickly enough that i don't think you have to worry about that i um if you want to wait and do it in the evening or you know go out and do it the next few minutes uh the tree would just yeah. love you for it, but even in the middle of the day, it's going to evaporate so quickly. I don't think you're going to have any problems with it. Okay. The other question, my Rosa Sharon's that I transplanted up here were doing beautifully. Can't The cows can't get at them. The deer can't get at them, but the uh, grasshoppers did Yeah. and ate all the leaves. Now, yep. have I lost them? or? No. No, they'll come back out. They're, they're a pretty tough plant. Uh, my mom grew them in East Tennessee where it got to 10 below zero in the winter. And uh, they, it's normal for them to lose their leaves in the winter. The grasshoppers just took them off a little prematurely. Uh, do the same thing. Just spray some water over the, over the limbs and trunk. They probably will put out a few more leaves this fall. But uh, Rosie Sharon is a really tough, hardy plant. It, it is... Like apple trees, it is susceptible to cotton and root rot. So uh, it's good to keep a good acidic mulch, just any good compost-type mulch on the soil around them. But uh, they can afford to be chewed up by the grasshoppers and still come right back out. Yeah, they didn't look well. And about a month ago, I put um, the mulch on it. Uh And then there were some ants. So I made some homemade lemonade syrup. So I put the lemon peels out there because it's citrus right they don't they, the ants disappeared uh-huh. and i'm like i looked at them yesterday i watered their trunk and i'm like i don't know i got a well, job in the morning <laughs> i i think they'll come back out uh althea's are are tough tough hardy plants are a great choice for mason even considering that you do get colder in the winter months so again and water the soil periodically but the soil Feel it. Let it get dry an inch deep before you water again. But that spraying the trunks, you can do that every day. You could do it, you know, several times a day, and it wouldn't bother the plants at all. They'd love it. Yeah, I do that with my baby burr oak. <laughs> yes, every ma'am. Day, every day. Every Very day. Good, and she, she, she's doing all right. All right. Well, I will put, when the sun comes up, I'll put the tree group back on it and uh, 
just keep my, I, I keep imagining maybe the roots are growing. I gave it well, a and, and Yeah, I, it's, it's hard to say. And like I say, apple trees can get cottony root rot, but that doesn't sound like uh, that's what the problem is. So uh, do the tree group, do the moisture on the trunk, and keep me posted on uh, when it comes out again for you. Sure will. Thank you, and you have a lovely day, and keep your fingers crossed for this projected <laughs> rain. Yes, ma'am. Uh, you can count on that. Fingers and toes crossed. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Thank, Thank you, Bob. Take care. Thank you, Chrissy. We'll talk again. Janet, hang on. You're up next, but i got to get a quick break in here. And I get to talk about Medina Agriculture, and I love talking about Medina Agriculture. Stuart Frankie's been a friend for, I don't know, 30, 40 years, something like that. The company's been there celebrating 60 years since Medina was founded and just founded on all the right principles, founded to work with nature, to work with microbes in the soil, And as Malcolm Beck used to always say, we don't feed the plants. We feed the soil, and the soil feeds the plants. We feed the microbes, and the microbes feed the plants. Well, Medina figured that out a long time ago when they started out with their soil activator, later improved it by adding more seaweed to it. They call that product Medina Plus. And then they started making great fertilizer products, liquid and dry. They're growing green as fully certified organic Wonderful stuff to use on grass and trees and shrubs and vegetable gardens and flower beds. And then they have their liquid products as well. Not only do they make fertilizers and soil activators and things, a lot of they, they have a lot of specialty products too. Liquid humates. They have a microbial blend to really kick up the microbial activity in your soil and in your compost pile. Plus they package the best orange oil in the business, molasses, uh, Medina's just a great company. If you want to see all their products, go to medinaag.com. If you want to see all those products in person, just go to any good nursery or garden center. Virtually everybody out there will be carrying quality products from Medina Agriculture. South Texas Gardening with Bob Webster. News Talk 550 KTSA and FM 1071. All right, back to gardening. Uh, What's going to be Janet and Mark, but Mark lost his connection. Call back if you like, sir. You'll be second in line. Do have some open lines. Grab one of them if you like. You know the number, 210-599-5555. You know those lines get jammed up a little later in the show, too. So now's a good time to dial just like Janet did. Good morning, Janet. Good morning, Bob. Um, I have a problem with a Yopon holly. It's been in the ground for 16 years. And it just seems like overnight I'm losing branches on it. They're dying. And tell me about where it's planted. Uh, Is it mulched? Is it a bed that you have put rock or anything like that? Uh, Has anything been changed around it in the past three or four years? No, sir. Um, It's planted in the front of the house, and it gets... Um, southeast sun, it starts off on the southeast, and the front of my house uh, eventually is facing the west. Okay. I actually have two of them. Um, one, the one that gets the least amount of this sun that we're getting is doing really well. It's just this one, and I didn't know if it was the the heat or what, but it just seemed like overnight, within a week, I'm losing all branches on it. And how do you water? Is it with a sprinkler system or by hand? Uh, how Both. do you keep it moistened? Both. Hey. 
it it sounds more like a water issue. Um, you also need to check if you haven't done so, and because uh, the damage can take years to show up. But uh, yopons get planted too deeply in the ground, just like trees and crepe myrtles and things do. So get down at some point and look carefully at the very base where it comes out of the ground, and you should see a significant widening of the trunk. They call it the root flare. They ought to call it the trunk flare. But that be could be contributing to it. Um, how often are you watering? Um, well, once a week with the sprinklers, and then maybe... Oh, gosh, uh, maybe in the middle of the week with the hose. And okay. since I noticed the damage, I've been watering it a little more. Okay. Well, be careful with uh, how often you water because, uh, again, you don't want to keep it too wet. And uh, water doesn't hurt anything, but when the soil stays so moist that the water drives the oxygen out of the soil, roots start dying. They, they're like animals. Uh, somebody sticks your head in a bucket of water for 10 minutes. Water didn't kill you. Lack of oxygen did. And so when you water, you want to water really thoroughly. Now, I'm going to tell you, just disregard the sprinkler system. Sprinklers, for the most part, uh, unless you're running them for two or three hours at a time, they don't put down enough water to make a difference you know, to a you know, big woody shrub like that. But uh, this one, as you you know, just were mentioning, gets the more sun, which means it's going to dry faster. It's going to use more water. So, um, again, I would check and be sure that the trunk's not buried. And if so, just keep pulling the soil back till you get down where you find the roots really spreading out. Just You just want to have air circulating around it. Beyond that, next time it needs water, I'd probably use a little Garrett juice, maybe a little Super Thrive. Um, it's, it's a typical response. An oak tree will do the same thing. When it starts getting too dry, it'll lose a limb here, a limb there, and that's much better than just having the whole plant suddenly turn brown. That's, that's sometimes literally the kiss of death. But, um, I think your yopons just saying, hey, I don't have enough nut- nutrient and water uptake to support all these leaves. So I'm just going to get rid of a few branches just to bring things back in proportion. So spraying up and down the trunk, like we've talked with some other things, will help. And things like Garrett Juice and Super Thrive that will help reestablish the roots are good. But I would, uh, again, I pretty much disregard the sprinkler system, but at least once a week, I would turn that hose on slowly, just lay it there, let it soak, soak, soak. Uh, and then when you can stick your finger in in that soil that the base of the plants dry about an inch deep, it's time to do the same thing again. How often that is is going to depend on wind, going to depend on temperature, going to depend on how sunny we stay. But yopons are tough, hardy plants. Chances are that plant is going to come back just fine. It may look worse before it looks better, maybe next spring before it really starts putting on uh, a bunch of new growth, but at some point it's just uh, it's just gotten drier than it wanted to. But uh, again, check the check the base. If you've had soil piled up around it for all those years, that gradually eats away at the bark and ultimately can wind up killing the plant. So it's important to check that. But I I think the thorough deep 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 watering is going to make the biggest difference. Just be sure you let it dry to the proper point between waterings. Okay, so uh, do I need to let the, some of the roots that come from the base show? Is that what you're saying? 
there, I need to expose some of those. If when when you get down to the point that really should be at the top of the ground, you will see where the trunk kind of broadens out, and you'll see some bigger roots, you know, going out laterally, and those should be right at the surface of the soil. If the top of the root is exposed, all the better. Uh, I mean, don't don't make it look like the whole plant is sitting on top of the ground. But yeah, I the, think I understand what you're saying. Yeah, just um, the, what you need to remember is that the trunk is different above and below ground. Above ground, the trunk isn't waterproof, and if it has wet soil around it, the trunk gradually rots from the outside in. Below ground level, the cells are filled with waterproofing agents, are called lignans and pectins and subarins, and uh, the roots and the lower and the portion of the trunk that's under the ground are designed by nature to have wet soil around them. But above the point that those bigger roots start flaring out, uh, the stem is just totally different, and you don't want anything impeding the air circulation around it. Okay. Um, I do not need to cut those branches off that look dead, though, right? I, you don't. Uh, some of them may. Are the leaves staying on them or are the leaves falling off? Um, so far, they're still on there. Okay, uh, you might as well just cosmetically probably trim some of those limbs off. If the leaves turn brown and fall off, then they frequently will come back out at that point. If they turn brown and stay brown, that limb is probably dead, and it wouldn't hurt to trim it out just to improve the appearance of the plant. Not going to make any difference to the plant, but it will certainly make a difference in how it looks. Yeah, it just seems uh, selective branches, though. The top of it's still good. But uh, yeah. just selective branches, so it, it's not a disease or anything, though, right? No, it's not a disease. I don't, okay, I don't think good. I've ever seen a disease in a yopon. But remember that the way the plant processes water, it takes water up through its roots, loses the water out through the leaves in a process we call transpiration. When the plant's losing moisture through the leaves faster than it can take it up through the roots, the plant in its own insensible way says hmm i better get rid of some leaves i'm losing water too quickly and that's when you start having the little sections dry the plant's just trying to bring the water loss of the leaves back in proportion with the water uptake through the roots does that make sense yes it does and thank you bob i really appreciate your help it's always a pleasure you get out and have a great weekend but don't get out in the hot sun this afternoon maybe tomorrow will be better I try to avoid it whenever I can. <laughs> you do it, Jenna. Thank you so Thank much. Thank you. Bye-bye. Goodbye. All right. Uh, Tim and Connie and Faye, hang on just a second. We're past 630. So let me get a quick break in here, and then we'll be talking to you guys. I get to talk to you about my good friend Rhonda and all the good people over at Rhonda's Nature's Way. And the health of plants is important, but the health of the gardener is the most important of all. And let me tell you, gardeners are active people. We love being outside and uh, enjoy being outside. And if you don't feel good, it just takes a lot away from your life. Rhonda and her staff have spent many, many, over 40 years helping people live better naturally. There's supplements that your body can always use, especially as you get a little older. If you're out in the heat, you need to be drinking plenty of fluid with electrolytes. And that doesn't mean a lot of these sugary sports drinks. You don't need all that sugar. You need the electrolytes. Rhonda has a product called Ultima. It's what I drink on a daily basis. And uh, let me tell you, it really helps you keep going through the heat. And it's great, great for your body. If you've got issues with digestion or sleep or, heaven forbid, mood, there are natural things that will help that. 
there also again COVID is really back big time great to keep your immune system really strong i take things to support my immune system and uh I'll give that at least partial credit for why I've stayed as healthy as I have through all of this. So if you're looking to just feel better, live better naturally, get by and see my friend Rhonda and all of her staff over at Rhonda's Nature's Way. Uh, Check out reflexology, too. Check out the Beamer and Red Light Therapies if you're fighting pain issues. Lots of reasons to go see Rhonda. She's open Monday through Saturday. Uh, The store is over in the shopping center at the corner of I-10 in Callahan, kind of right across the parking lot from Sprouts. Tell her I said hello, and uh, you get yourself over and see everybody at Rhonda, Rhonda's, and you too will live better naturally. South Texas Gardening with Bob Webster is on the air. News Talk 550, KTSA, and FM 1071. All right, let's get back to these phone lines. Looks like it's going to be Tim and Connie and Faye. Tim is up first. Good morning, Tim. Good morning, Bob. Morning, sir. Up, yep, up and out. Uh, are you <laughs> Good be, thing. Yeah. Are you going to be planting any of the edible pea pods this fall for a crop? Um, planting what, what? Oh, the edible peas. Uh, yeah, the, the so-called snow peas. You can probably plant those almost any time. Um, they don't mind cold weather. When it gets really cold, freezing weather tends to destroy the blooms. Uh, but it doesn't normally hurt the plant. So you want to get them up in time to, oh, it's going to be about 30 to 45 days before they start blooming. Then they will continue to bloom right up until, you know, we start getting regular frost and freezes. So, I, again, I'm going to hope that the weathermen, I don't know I'm going to say I'm going to trust them, but I'm going to hope that this truly is when we start moving out of the hundreds down in the 90s and upper 80s. And uh, I think probably within a couple of weeks we're going to be into good weather for uh, planting the edible pod peas. Uh, keep in mind there's a bush form and a climbing form. Both of them produce pretty heavily. Just if you get the climbers, uh, you'll need to have a fence or a trellis or something like that for them to grow on. Yeah, well, I, I know it, uh, in order to have that crop that doesn't freeze, you got to get the seeds in right about now. Uh, that's correct. That is yeah. correct. Uh, uh, or, uh, again, typically we don't get freezing weather till December. Uh, that's still, you know, two and a half, two and two-thirds months away. So uh, you've got you've got probably another good three or four weeks of planting time for fall crop. But uh, um, seed's cheap. I would go ahead and plant. And uh, if it stays too hot, you can always plant a few more in a couple of weeks. Okay. Also, too, this year has been terrible red spider. Yeah. And I guess as far as preventive with those seeds coming up, uh, the, uh, the seaweed with the uh, spinosad in it would be uh, just like a weekly application? Or I, I like to mix seaweed and molasses. Um, if I actually start seeing a problem with aphids or spider mites or something like that, I'll add the spinosad. But spinosad kills beneficials just like it does the bad guys. So I usually use it in a reactive rather than a proactive fashion. But the seaweed molasses mix, man, do that every week or two, and you'll have a great deal of resistance uh, to mites, and you'll have an improved growth. You'll have improved flavors. It just It's a great, great mix to be using literally on everything in the garden. 
So if you mix your own molasses, seaweed, what amount per gallon? Or uh, Two tablespoons seaweed, one tablespoon molasses per gallon of spray. Approximately. You don't have to, you know, measure it with uh, <laughs> an exact measuring cup, but about uh, two tablespoons uh, seaweed, one tablespoon molasses, gallon of water, make a great spray. Hey, well, uh, we, we love those Chinese peapod things, and uh, I... you don't too uh, too late in the year. I would get I would get on it right away. Uh, be aware that there are not a lot of bees out there now. If anything's going to bring bees in, uh, pea blooms do it better than just about anything else. But there's a chance you're going to have to take that little paintbrush and uh, you kind of have to get inside the flowers. But you may end up doing some hand pollination because uh, we're just not seeing the the honeybees that we normally do. Thank goodness we're seeing a lot of bumblebees, a lot of mason bees, so probably not going to be an issue. But if you start getting blooms without having the seed pods set, uh, then you just need to start doing a little hand pollinating as well. Okay. Well, uh, always enjoy your your thoughts and directions, and we'll uh, get them in the ground probably today. <laughs> you do it, Tim. Proud of you. <laughs> just Thank don't you. get don't get overheated. Get some of that Ultima and drink plenty of it before and after you're out there. And uh, uh, Jimmy, let's keep going and get Connie on next. Uh, good morning, Connie. Good morning, Bob. Good morning. I think I have three quick questions. Um, red yucca. Can you plant that in the fall? Absolutely. Uh, it's not a true yucca. It's something called Hesperallo. And if we got down into single digits, it could suffer some freeze damage. But typically, even down to the teens, it's not going to be bothered by cold weather. Uh, fall is the best time in the world for plants growing roots. So I would not hesitate to plant red yucca. And be aware that nowadays there are several different colors of red yucca. The original one was kind of a coral color, but... There's one yeah. called brake lights. It's, you know, almost bright red. There's a, an almost pure yellow one. There's a pink one. Red yucca is an outstanding plant to be planting, and uh, I would not hesitate to plant it this fall. I think it would be a good plan. Well, um, the reason I'm asking is because I had one in a pot for mm-hmm. eons, you know, many, many years, and it, you know, it made little baby plants, and so... I can't remember if it was last fall or early this spring. I transplanted one of those babies in the ground next to my mailbox. Uh And I don't think I watered it much at all, and it looks fine. So I'm like, (laughs) I need to plant more those. Absolutely. Just be sure they get good sun. They won't bloom unless they get good sun. uh, Oh, yeah. uh, Well, that's spot that gets a lot of good sun but uh, are the other colors as hardy as the red you know the yes the old-timey yeah. one the regular Ab- one absolutely absolutely there's not much of anything bothersome like everything else you want to be careful that you're not planting them too deep in the soil but uh yeah. tough hardy durable like i say they're they're not a yucca they're not a uh you know they're not going to have the sharp edge leaves that cut you in the spikes on the end like the big old so-called graveyard daggers, yucca carnero, sena. These are a whole different group of plants, and um, uh, they're just outstanding. They're they're easy to maintain, beautiful flowers, drought tolerant. Uh, I don't think I've ever seen an insect problem on them. Uh, uh, nothing but good things to say about red yucca. 
Okay, so good. And then uh, plumbago. Mm-hmm. Um, I have like I have one plant over by a fence where it gets lots of sun and it looks terrible. But I have some in the back of the house in a bed that gets dappled light. Mm-hmm. And they both look good, so I thought, well, I need to plant some more of those back there. So absolutely, there's a in the fall. yeah, absolutely light blue, dark blue, white, and your one out by the fence uh, would do well if it got a little more water. We've got some of it in direct hot sun, and it's been one of the champions. It has bloomed all summer long, the white and the uh, blue. So uh, uh, they do they do take a little extra water through the summer months, but. Fall's a great time to plant them, and uh, they are a great plant. Now, there's a totally different plant uh, that people call dwarf plumbago, which isn't plumbago at all. It's a ground cover, properly called serratostigma. Uh, in fact, its mm-hmm. proper name is serratostigma plumbagioides, which literally means looks like plumbago. Uh, dark blue, I've watered mine twice this summer. Beautiful ground cover, turns red in the fall, dives back to the ground and comes back out again. That's also an excellent plant you can plant now, but it's not a plumbago. Okay. And then my last um, plant I want to ask about, I want to transplant some spider lily bulbs, mm-hmm. I guess they are. You know, it's they have they put the big stalk with the weird-looking white flower on it. Yeah, yeah. And, and, you know, when they freeze, they turn to mush, and I just cut them down to the ground, and then they come right, right back so when do you transplant those? Pretty much any time during the fall. I'd let it cool off just a little bit, um, but you can then dig and divide. When you when you dig and divide, you probably want to cut most of the leaves off the top okay. uh, because you don't want that, that drain, so to speak, of the moisture yeah. being lost. But, uh, yeah, but they're common names, Peruvian daffodil, proper name uh, Hymenocallus. Uh, and they're, they're just a bunch of different plants called spider lilies, but the one you have is one of the easiest ones, and given two or three years, it'll make a clump, and next time you divide it, you'll have about 50 plants from it. So, uh, uh, yeah, divide as we cool off just a little bit. Don't wait till January, but uh, October, October probably the best month of the year to divide and replant. Okay, well, great. Yeah, that's another thing that seems to be doing really well in the backyard. So I'm like, I need to spread them. <laughs> I hope I hope everybody is as good as you are in making notes of the things that have been tolerant of this. Uh, it's been one of the hardest summer on people and plants that I can remember. Mm-hmm. But uh, and you know, talking with Howard Garrett about this, talking with some of our growers, we're just all kind of making lists that we ought to be writing down of these plants that have just been, I guess we'd call them drought champions, that uh, keep blooming, keep looking good, and don't uh, break the bank as far as needing water. And you've you've talked about two or three good ones here. Well, I've got uh, some good work to do this fall, then. You do it, Connie. You enjoy, and I appreciate the call this morning. Okay. Thank you. Thank you, and goodbye. All right, Faye, hang on just a minute, and then it'll be your turn. I get to talk about another one of the summer champions, and that's Sam Sitterly and his company, Green Grow Organics. It has been a challenging summer. Even the professionals are seeing things they don't always see. And for us average gardeners, you know, some of us just need a little help. Wish we had somebody that would come out and look at what's going on in the landscape with us. 
and tell us what to do to remedy that problem. That's what Sam's been doing for over 30 years. Everything he does is organic, which I strongly support. And uh, lots and lots of people out there will tell you that they owe their beautiful landscapes to the help that they've gotten from Sam. He's not the guy that's going to mow your grass or trim your trees or shrubs for you and not going to plant things. But he's the guy that will help you understand what's going on and how to get the very most out of your landscape. They do compost tea application. They do some fertilizer application. But I uh, wouldn't really call him a yard crew. I'd call him a, a heavy rescue crew, so to speak, when when uh, you've got a really challenging situation. Lots of folks set it up for Sam to come out on a quarterly basis. Some people with a new landscape want him out there once a month. Other folks just call him as they need him. Any way it works for you is good. Just go to his his, uh, website, which is GreenGrow, spelled out G-R-O-W, GreenGrowOrganics.com. Check out the program uh, if it looks good to you. Call and set up an appointment. Be sure you understand any charges up front. But uh, there are just an awful lot of people who owe their beautiful landscapes to Green Grow Organics. And some of our customers call him Saint Sam because he says he's, they say he's just really revived a landscape for them. That's Green Grow Organics and Sam Sitterly. Phone number 599-5565. Website GreenGrowOrganics.com. South Texas Gardening with Bob Webster. News Talk 550 KTSA and FM 1071. All right, back to gardening. Jimmy tells me we've got some open lines, so if you were getting a busy signal there for a while, probably get through right now. You know the number, 210-599-5555. And next in line is Faye. Good morning, Faye. Good morning, Bob. Good morning. Good morning Um, to you. How's things? Go ahead. Oh, we got a sprinkle this morning of rain. So a sprinkle's better than none. Every drop counts these days. It really does. I I hope it's coming our way uh, next, and I hope you get an even more thorough soaking this week. Say chances are better. We don't need a Category 5 storm like the one out in the Atlantic, but we need a good little tropical depression to blow over and just really give us good soaking rains, but we... We'll be thankful for whatever we get. What's going on in your world today? Well, um, one question. I've got a couple questions. One of them is raccoons. How can the professionals catch them? And I haven't been successful. Do you have an idea? Well, there, you know, there, there are a number of reasons. Are they springing the trap but not getting caught, or are they just not going in the trap? I'd say they're just not going in. You need to find something they really like. And uh, what I bait a trap for raccoons with is dried fruit. Go to the grocery store, get yourself something something tough, dried peaches, uh, uh, something that you can put a wire through and actually tie to the pedal in the trap. Many people just tend to, um, you know, sprinkle something out that the raccoons and go in and get it and eat and back right out. Uh, the other thing that I do in addition to actually attaching the fruit to the pedal inside and and that works but i occasionally have trouble with fire ants going after it in that case i'm going to put something on the ground under the trap and then set the trap on top of it and what i usually use there is dry corn or um, sometimes i just use cattle cubes but don't try to put it in the trap your trap should have kind of a wire mesh bottom and i put it on the ground set the trap on top of it 
That and and I also put a couple of big concrete blocks on either side of it so the raccoons can't dig under the trap to get to it. They have to walk inside, and when they start trying to reach through the bottom and dig, they catch themselves virtually every time. Now, the reason I ask if uh, the trap was getting tripped but just not catching the raccoon, there are bunches of raccoons out there that are just too blasted big to get in a little live trap, and sometimes you just have to go to a bigger trap. Uh, but as far as baiting, if you don't have a problem with ants, a dried fruit works extremely well. If you do, uh, I, and what I get is sometimes those uh, ears of dried corn that are made. I don't know why anybody wants to feed the squirrels, but they actually dry them to put out for the squirrels. But I'll take those and just scrape a handful of dry kernels off, put that on the ground, set my trap on top of it, and the raccoons in my neighborhood can't seem to resist that. Well, I just have got to control them here one way or another. And Oh, yeah. And, Unsuccessful, but I bought I bought several traps new, so maybe uh, and so that very uh, much helps me. I'll I'll report in next week. Well, do do that and uh, be sure that you are setting them properly. We had a problem catching them here at the nursery and went out with one of our employees who claimed he knew how to set the trap. Well, he didn't know how to set the trap, and the raccoons were getting in and stealing the bait without triggering it. So. If you're not real familiar with the trap you have, um, you probably got a neighbor or a friend that can take a look at it with you because uh, you really want it to be a hair trigger. You you don't want the raccoon to have to work it, slamming it shut. And um, uh, again, I've seen I've seen a lot of very intelligent people that just didn't fully understand exactly how the trap worked and consequently weren't catching the raccoons like they needed to. I'll report that next time I. Uh... Hopefully catch one. Well, and I hope that won't be too long. I'd love to hear from you tomorrow morning telling you what a good night you had. But uh, <laughs> do do be careful because, again, uh, I've got raccoons that weigh close to 20 pounds, and you do not want to get your fingers anywhere near that trap. Be sure uh, that you can handle it you know, from the handle on top uh, without, without getting your fingers in reach of those teeth because they'll – they get mad, they get aggressive, they'll jump at the side of it, they'll try to, you know, knock it out of your hand. Um, I've trapped a lot of raccoons, and uh, uh, I'm not like some folks who just use as a place to, uh, uh, you know, get them, get them down to where they can shoot them before they run away. I do relocate them several miles away into a wildlife management area, but uh, there's there's a lot to be said for having a good trap, but even more importantly, knowing how to handle it safely. Well, I sure appreciate you going over that, Bob. That's very helpful. I have one other question that relates to pasture grasses that I'll just be putting down by hand. I don't have equipment. So um, we have one horse and, and just a little bit of uh, um, foragers. So mm-hmm. how do I do that best and have it? Uh, well, have even it if they're relatively small paddocks, you need to work at getting it set where you can rotate that horse around. You keep one horse on five acres is going to eat it all the way down to the ground. You divide that into three acre and a half uh, paddocks, so to speak, and you can keep good grass in there. Hey, let me get Jimmy to put you back on hold. We'll talk more about this right after news. 
here on KTSA Radio. South Texas Gardening with Bob Webster is on the air. Talk to Bob now. 210-599-5555. All right. We're going to get back to the phone lines. Going to talk to Faye just a little more. Then it's going to be Maria and Julie and then you. Uh, (coughs) Excuse me, Faye. uh, Back to your getting some grass established. Um, There... Is it an area that you can water? Um, You're over closer to Houston where you usually get a little bit more rainfall than we do. But can you water even in a small area at a time to uh, get some grass going? Probably in small areas at a time, yes. Okay. That's going to be your best bet. You could always sprig coastal or something in there, but there are other grasses you can plant are more nutritious. And what I would do, um, do you have any electric fencing? You know, electric fences are so different these days. They, uh, it's just it's a piece of polypropylene cord. You're not actually stretching bare wire. And you can put up half a dozen little stakes and kind of cordon off one area at a time. And horses really respect electricity, believe me. <laughs> you can, they, they encounter an electric fence once, and you can probably turn it off. They'll never go near it again. But I would, I would figure out how much you can water, and I would then put up my little electric fence to keep the horse from wanting to go in and eat your seed as it sprouts. Then I would just get a good native grass mix for your area and get that first area started, then move to a little bit other area and just keep going. Eventually you get that acre and a half done. And um, it, it's, it's just really remarkable. In moving your horse or anyone moving, you know, any number of animals around, you don't look at how far down they have eaten the grass that's in that particular little paddock. We won't really call it a pasture. It's not big enough, but in that little paddock. And you base your decision on how the grass looks in the next place that you want to put the horse. When it's ready to be grazed, then you open it up, let your horse in there, close off the other one, and let it regrow and uh, had a friend up in, in the Bernie area that had a couple of horses, and he, as he described it, lived on five acres of mud, got him. He happened to be in the farm and ranch business, so he had all the all everything he needed when it came to electric fence and things like that. But uh, he got to where he had a beautiful green area around his home, and he just kept rotating his horses through that five acres. So um, the the thing about dividing it into smaller paddocks is, remember, you'll have to have water in each one of those. So do it on paper. Figure out how you can, uh, you know, get a, you know, a, a, a tank with a, you know, float valve or something on it in each of those three paddocks that you're going to create. Uh, it's going to, you know, you're not going to do it overnight, but when you're done, you are going to be happy. The horse is going to be happy, and it's going to be very little work for you to maintain it. Well, that sounds like a really good plan. I appreciate you going over that, Bob. And one other thing on our vegetables, seeds, going by seeds now, just a quick calendar on when, where we start at this time going on forward. If you're a gambler, uh, you could still plant a few more bush beans. You could still plant some more zucchini or crookneck squash because they'll be producing. I've had them produce in 21 days from the time I planted the seed. Every now and then we get an early cold snap, but, you know, a couple of packages of seed aren't going to set you back too much. 
other wintertime things that you can plant from seed. I think you're okay to plant chard now. You're okay to plant, uh, probably to plant kale now. A couple of weeks we'll be planting lettuce, and then as it really cools down, you can think about radishes and carrots and beets and turnips. Radishes you could probably actually plant now. Uh, if you want to try growing some snow peas for fall, those could certainly go in the ground now. So those are a few things that I would suggest putting in the ground. Well, thank you. Uh, you set up my work schedule. Sure appreciate it. Well, you get out and don't get overheated, and uh, above all, enjoy what you're doing, Faith. It's always a pleasure to hear from you. And next up is Maria. Good morning, Maria. Hi, Bob. I have a question on palmetto grass. Uh-huh. I had a late start uh, because I finally found a landscaper, but we planted a small area of palmetto grass, and I watered it for two weeks every day, and this is in July. And now uh-huh. it, it looks good, but at about 3 o'clock in the afternoon, the sun really beats on a certain area, and it's looking a little not as green as it was. and The blades look a little bit thin. And I'm wondering, how often should I be watering it? You should feel the soil, and when that soil's dry about half an inch deep, water it thoroughly again. Uh, have you fertilized it since you planted it? No, I haven't. That was my next question. <laughs> okay. Well, get out today if you can and get some good organic fertilizer. Uh, get uh-huh. Medina or Nature's Creation or Maestro Grow. They don't even have to be watered in, but get your fertilizer out and water when you can. And that's going to help it. As soon as it cools off even a little bit, and if it's just one area that's not looking as strong as the other, get a few bags uh-huh. of compost. Spread your compost about an in, a half an inch deep over that area. And that's going to reduce the water usage by the grass. And there's nothing that's going to make it look as good as putting a thin layer of compost over it. Do your area that's suffering for sure. And when you're able, do the entire area that you've planted. Okay, and on on the fertilizer, I always go to your place of business, uh, Shades of Green, and I always get garden essentials. Does that would that be okay? Yeah, it's landscape essentials, and that's as far as I'm yeah. concerned, the perfect fertilizer. When we find a product we love, we go to the uh-huh. guy that made it, and uh, we love Medina's product. They call Growing Green. We went to Stuart and said, Stuart, if you were doing it over, what else would you have added? And he told us, oh, more humates, more green sand. I don't know what all he said. And we said, okay, then go ahead and add those and put it in our bag. So what we sell, we call landscape essentials, is just a slightly okay. improved form of the growing green. So okay. uh, your palmetto grass would love that. Landscape essentials. Okay. And the other question was um, on uh, uh, flax lily. Does, mm-hmm. well, in the winter, will it just dry out? I cut it down, and will it come back? It normally doesn't even freeze unless it gets really cold. If it gets down in the teens, it will freeze down. And most, you know, nine winters out of 10, 19 winters out of 20, it comes right back out. Uh, The year it got to eight or nine degrees, some of it froze and died. But typically, uh, it doesn't even freeze down unless it gets down to around 20 degrees. And if it does freeze down, it usually comes right back out in the spring. Okay, so start uh, fertilizing. Well, I'm watering now because I checked the, the, the ground, and it was pretty dry. But, it's time um, to 
be sure you're putting yeah. down at least an inch of water. Uh, if you've got okay. a sprinkler running out there, take a little straight-sided dish or something and go time how long it takes to run an inch of water into that dish, and that's how long okay. your sprinkler needs to run each time you water. Okay. The other question I have, caladium. Do they freeze in the winter and come back? Because I have a lot of them. I love them. They're doing fantastic. But um, would I have to would I have to uh, cut them down, or will they just grow back? They generally don't don't even grow back. Um, if okay. you've taken real good care of your caladiums and you have been fertilizing regularly, uh, the bulb. If you just plant it and water it and forget about it, it's going to be pretty much beautiful all summer long. But when you go to dig uh-huh. it up in the fall, there's not much left of it. If you're watering really, really regularly, fertilizing at least monthly or so, then right. you'll still have a pretty good bulb. But if you want your bulbs next year, you pretty much have to dig them up when the tops go okay. down in the fall, replant them mm-hmm. the next spring because if our soil gets cold and wet in the winter months, those bulbs will rot. Uh, we treat them okay. as an annual, and like I say, if you've okay. taken really good care of them, you can dig them up and replant them year after year. Most people just buy some new bulbs in the spring. New, right. Okay, and uh, I finally got some Garrett juice, uh-huh. and uh, I've been spraying it on my all my plants that I have, and they're uh-huh. doing very well. Now, can I, uh, can I spray some on the grass or not? Absolutely, absolutely. Your grass will love it just as much as your other plants do. Okay, do I spray it, or can I just mix it mix it up and then just pour it, or just spray? Whatever works for you. It goes okay. a little further if you spray it, but uh, okay. nothing at all wrong with putting it in the watering can and putting it on. You're probably going to put a little more on that way, and the plants are going right. to like it even better. Okay, all right. Sounds good, Bob. Thank you. You're welcome, Maria. Thank you for the call and, this and morning. And by the way, I, I did get Sam Sitterly out here before I landscaped my yard. Was he, he helpful to you? Oh, yes. He told us what to do. But at that time, I, I hadn't landscaped the yard. I, and I hadn't done, I just didn't have any uh, grass on one side. It was just dirt. And mm-hmm. I, had, I had put a retaining wall. I finally got someone to put a retaining wall. But he told me what to do and everything. And my backyard looks pretty good. And uh, I really, he he sits down with you, and he writes down everything. <laughs> that So you won't forget, you know, which is great. And well, he tells he... you where to go, what where to get all the stuff you need. So that was really, really helpful. Well, I really I'm did enjoy that. so glad that he gave you the help you needed. He's, he's a good guy, and uh, he's human, too. He knows, he knows it's one thing to listen, but to write it down so you remember it is always right. a good idea. But uh, next time you see him, tell him I said hello. I will. Thank you, Bob. Thank you, Maria. Appreciate okay. it. Bye-bye. Goodbye. All right. Need to get a break in here, and then it will be Julie's turn. Looks like I get to talk about uh, our good friends at Nature's Creation and uh, Nature's Creation. Just wonderful line of products they make organic products they package a great compost a great mulch material the living mulch with compost in it they make a garden soil they make a landscape uh, grade soil they make uh, potting soil in several size bags if it comes to soils you're just not going to do any better for bag soil than you do with nature's creation they also make a wonderful fertilizer and today they want me to feature their dry molasses product 
Dry molasses is an energy source that works. Uh, it just helps everything in your yard, from your grass to your shrubs and trees, and uh, tends to repel some unwanted critters as well. Dry molasses is great. The problem is with most companies, you open that bag and it turns into a brick. The dry molasses you get from nature's creation stays loose and open. Now, don't get water in the bag. That's going to make anything uh, tend to clump up. But nature's creation simply does it right, and they package an extremely good dry molasses product. I can't tell you how much of it we put on our plants, and I tell you it has really made a difference in how things got through these hot summer months. It just increases the microbial life in the soil, and that makes everything better. Nature's Creation also makes uh, just a lot of different products out there, things like the Cedar Repel, both liquid and granules, just the name you need to get to know. Everything is natural, everything is uh, organically based, and the products work really well right here in San Antonio in the Hill Country. You're going to find their products at a lot of different places, too. Hill Country African Violets up in Bernie, Plant House in both uh, Kerrville and New Braunfels, Rainbow Gardens, both locations, Fanix, Millburgers. We carry them here at Shades of Green. Quality products from nature's creation. South Texas Gardening with Bob Webster is on the air. News Talk 550, KTSA, and FM 1071. All right, let's get back to gardening. It's going to be Julie and then John. Julie is first in line. Good morning, Julie. Good morning, Bob. Good morning. Uh, a, a lady called about three ladies before, and I can't remember her name, but she talked about the tree that was just dying only on one side. Mm-hmm. Okay. And hers was a deciduous tree, I think. The, I can't remember what she uh, said. An ap- apple tree, I, as I recall. An apple tree. You're right. You're right. That's right. Okay. I have a beautiful, soft pine tree, and I don't know what kind of a pine tree it is, in Oklahoma now. That was doing the same thing, and we went. I got some of the little, um, oh, what do you call it that that you put on the tree, and it's supposed to kill all the, uh, you know, the small bagworms and. Um, Could be BT you know. of some sort. Yeah, um, no, you, you, I, that's it. That's it. Okay. I ordered some. Yeah. And I, I, I even put two of them on this tree and two of them on a couple of other ones that we, we had trouble with webworms. Uh-huh. Okay, we didn't have any trouble. It really worked. But yeah, this is a trichogram of wasp is what we're talking trich- about. Yeah, that's it. Okay. You don't have to spell but, it. You can just call it T-wasp and we know what, you know what you're okay, talking about. That's so much easier. Thank you. Thank you. I'll remember T-wasp. Um, but we had one whole side of it, and this started last summer. At the very end of the summer, and it just one whole strip, just, um, you know, all the branches on one side kind of started turning um, completely dead. And so we were watching it real carefully, and I we got in there with a rake. We, we tried to pull up as many of the roots as we could see that are on top of the ground uh-huh. and water. And, and I've been trying to water it really well, maybe about an hour, an hour and a half. Uh, once a week because we have a, a sprinkler system so it gets some water anyway not mm-hmm. much but some but then it started it again and um, we went in and kind of cleaned up the middle it was really really thick Bob I mean really and I thought maybe it wasn't getting enough air in there because it's just 
I mean, in Oklahoma, it's just like it has been in San Antonio. I mean, it's been oh, like yeah. it's an oven. 108 degrees forever. I mean, yeah. forever. Yeah. And so uh, do you think it will work as, it, as you described it with the apple tree? Well, I would think it would. And um, here's kind of a weird thing about trees, but it's, it's certainly fact-based. And that is that the roots on one side of a tree support the limbs on that side of the tree. And if something happens, uh, you know, on, on a given side of a tree, many times the leaves, the limbs on that side will show a lot more stress and in some cases die than they do on the opposite side. So what could cause that? If anything has, you know, compacted the soil, uh, in some cases we've got a tree here at the nursery that uh, we've got to take care of a couple of girdling roots. Really didn't realize how bad it was until uh, <laughs> we had our well, friend David Vaughn come out. But something is happening to the roots on, on one side of that tree, and that's why you've got branches on that side of the tree that are not doing well. Now, uh, that probably is where you need to focus your water, assuming that there's not a question of you know it staying too wet. Uh, but that's uh-huh. where you need to really work on doing your watering. That's where you need to uh, uh, perhaps do some of the sick tree treatment, perhaps do some liquid fertilizer. Uh, and the tree should certainly respond. Now, pine trees uh, and other conifers aren't as good about absorbing water directly through the bark because they have a whole different kind of bark. But, uh, of, of course, I'm do... It. Yeah, it, you'll never go wrong with doing that. But focus okay. on the side of the tree that's having problems. Um, you may even want to kind of wash the soil away on that side. And be sure you don't have, I mean, a, a root doesn't have to go all the way around the trunk to girdle it. It can just be pressed up against the side of the tree and can be causing issues. So uh, something that I can't identify, but hopefully you can, something is causing a lot more stress to the roots on one side of the tree than on the other and that's why you're okay. that's, you're having the damage show up more in one area than another. Okay, if I see a root that's about uh, 14 inches long that is up against the all the way up against the tree trunk mm-hmm. on that side, should I just kind of very carefully chisel it out? It would probably be a good idea. I can't tell you without seeing it, but right. if it is actually making an indentation into the side of the tree. Um, yes, it would be good to remove it. Now, okay. again, I, you have to be very careful because now in, I would. Case, in cases where it has gone on a while, uh, it's kind of like a stretched rubber band. And you can imagine if, if you took a rubber band and stretched it, you know, between your thumb and forefinger and pulled it out real tightly, and then somebody cut it in the middle, you're going to get popped on both ends. And okay. uh, yeah, people people have been severely hurt who, you know, took on something they shouldn't have done. So just okay. just understand, and uh, I, I, again, can't tell you without seeing it how much pressure is created, but um, just be aware that if you cut it, uh, it there could be some tension built up in there, and you don't want a chisel or something else thrown back in your face. So, um, yeah, and just, also, Bob... Oh, yeah. I was going to say, we, about five years ago, and now this is just coming up to, I mean, we installed a, a bocce court. 
Mm-hmm. You know what bocce is? You know the bocce ball. Oh, I love yeah. to play bocce ball. Bruce Dooley okay. is the guy that taught me. Yeah. But it's at least I would say it's a good ten feet from the from it. Uh, but you know, to think of that, it's only on top of the. It's not anything dug down. You know what mm-hmm. I mean? We put a we put a, a an edge around it with um, those four by fours, and you know, filled it. But and maybe that just. It didn't like it, but I mean, well, it's there. So yeah, <laughs> cono- conifers have have shallow roots. What you need to do is just focus on improving the soil there. Uh, compaction okay. can certainly be an issue, which means you probably ought to be using a little bit more molasses. You should be doing anything you can to keep the soil from getting as packed on that side. Um, okay. And that's going to be Medina Plus. That's going to be molasses. That's going to be things like that. But uh, that could certainly be a contributing factor because uh, these trees have fairly widespread roots, and uh, I can't say that's the whole problem, but if you have mm-hmm. have the combination of girdling root and compaction, then you've got two strikes against that side of the tree. Yeah. Okay, I'll do that. And I put a whole bag of uh, azomite, a whole bag, all the way around it. And it's really beautiful, it, but, I mean, uh, we looked out today after that horrible week we've had last week, and there was an, an, another whole branch that was dead. And yeah. we're cutting them off because it's like you say, the tree doesn't care. But yeah. we do. You know, yeah. we don't want it. We want it to look pretty. Okay, well, thank you so much, Bob. I well, really keep an eye on it, Julie, and keep me posted on how it does. I always look forward to hearing okay. from you. All righty. All righty. Thank you. You're certainly Bye-bye. welcome. Thank you. Uh, goodbye. Uh, John, hang on just a second. We need to get a break out of the way. Uh, Jimmy, I let's see here. Yes, I do have uh, one more live commercial to do in this hour, and that's somebody that I love talking about, that group being Wild Birds Unlimited. was out there just the other day uh, getting a visit in with people and getting some seed and some things that I needed from them. Wild Birds Unlimited is just a fun place to visit if you love the outdoors and especially if you love birds. And if you're getting into birding, what a great summer this is to uh, attract so many things into your yard. Because in nature, they don't have nearly as much food as they normally do. They don't have nearly as much water as they normally do. So you offer them the appropriate food and water, and they will literally flock to your yard. No pun intended. Uh, You can get everything, I don't know, things that we look out at every day, or uh, things like the blackback goldfinches, the uh, titmice, the different house finches, the there are just so many different things. A couple of different kinds of woodpeckers, the scrub jays, and just beautiful birds, warblers, and other things will be in your yard. If you've got kids or grandkids that you're trying to introduce to nature and birding, Wild Birds Unlimited has everything you need to get started, plus some great, reasonably priced optics, binoculars, monoculars, things like that. Wild Birds Unlimited is also a great place to find ways to provide your birds water with fountains, with uh, bird baths, uh, hanging and ground-based. Uh, they're just so many different things. In addition to all the things for the birds, well, they've got incredible gift merchandise there as well. You just need to go see them. Easy to find. They're in the shopping center out at the corner of Northwest Military and Hebner, kind of in the side that faces Northwest Military. Boy, when you when you drive in the parking lot, you'll think, well, gee, that doesn't look like a very big place. You walk inside and you think, 
How on earth did they get all so many things in here? And when it comes to seed and bird food, they have the appropriate material for the season. And theirs is always fresh. They tend to get three shipments a week instead of three shipments a month many times. Wild Birds Unlimited, they should be your headquarters for anything related to nature and a great place to visit when it's time to give gifts. And they always welcome your call if you have questions. 210-479-BIRD. And they're open seven days a week to serve you. Check their website. Give them a call to check their exact hours. But they would love to see you at Wild Birds Unlimited. South Texas Gardening with Bob Webster. News Talk 550 KTSA and FM 1071. All right. Back to gardening and straight on back to the phone lines. John's first and then Tana. Good morning, John. Good morning, Bob. Good morning, sir. The old Lone Star flag is is uh, indicating a north wind. Wow! And Where are you? I'm in uh, between Gonzales and Seguin. Oh, <laughs> very the, good. On the river, and well. uh, yeah, you can feel the the change of the seasons. It's it's a big relief. But it's uh, about time. <laughs> yeah, I got to see some storms, some big thunderclouds, probably from like Columbus down to Victoria. Uh-huh. yesterday evening and they sure got a good rain <clears throat> excuse me i hope we're that. hope we're next uh my grandpa used to say there's nothing lower than a snake's belly in a wagon rut but <laughs> the feral cats here are proving him wrong because in the wagon rut below the snake's belly there's a present from the cats and uh-huh. I, I filled the wagon ruts with uh wood chips Mm-hmm. And that lasted till the rain. Uh, last when was that spring? We had rain. I can't even remember. When uh, sometime in the distant past, yes, sir. That slowed it down. Then I put, I uh, sprayed it with a weak solution of mint oil. I was doing some other work, and uh, mm-hmm. but uh, that slowed it down. But it doesn't doesn't last. What uh, what could I fill that? That's it gets filled with sand. Mm-hmm. And uh, you drive over it, so it's you know a product gets worn out pretty good. I was thinking about maybe putting diesel in there, but eh. what, what I would do is uh, um, either you can use base material or you can use something like decayed granite, but go to a home improvement store and get some cement, not concrete. Uh, but get Portland cement. Portland or cement is the binding agent in concrete. And my mixing rate is about eight shovelfuls of, uh, and I use decayed granite more just because it's easier to mix. But I'll use about eight shovelfuls of that in a wheelbarrow and then one full shovelful of uh, the cement. Kind of mix them up, put them in place, and uh, it sets up hard. It's not like a concrete drive to drive over, but it will not wash away. Uh, animals can't dig in it, and uh, it it's a very, oh, it, it's just the greatest, and, and you know, I my driveway is fairly steep and uh, uh, is not paved, so I get the ruts periodically, and that's how I've solved the problem, and it really does take care of it. And like I say, either something like decayed granite, which is easier to mix, or uh, I know on my business partner's ranch, uh, when they built her, roads around the ranch um, in any low areas that were prone to washing. That's exactly what they did. A little uh, cement mixed in with the base 
And, uh, you know, when you're working, when you've got a bobcat right there <laughs> that you're working with, it makes it much easier to mix. But then you just spread it into those ruts, and uh, first little moisture that comes along, it hardens up, and uh, you won't have ruts anymore. And and it uh, does it set, or is it uh, loose? or? No, it sets. It sets. Now, be prepared that they only sell Portland cement in 90-pound or sometimes 120-pound bags. So, right. Um, <laughs> yeah, either do a few do a few uh, pull-ups before you go to pick it up or, you know, get, get the appropriate help because those blasted bags, I don't know why they won't put it in a smaller bag, but let me tell you, you'll know you picked up a, You'll know you picked up a heavy bag. They make a, and, and depending on the situation, they also make a white Portland cement because uh, that's what, you know, masons use. They're making their own mortar, so to speak, and uh, if for whatever reason you want a lighter color, you could use that. But where we're just using it to patch roads, the standard gray cement is all I use, and once it's in place, you don't see any color to it whatsoever. It's just all of a sudden things are anchored in place very securely. And that's 8 to 1 ratio? That's what I use. And, uh, again, it's going to set up hard. It's not so hard you couldn't break it with a digging bar or something. It's not like having to get a jackhammer if you ever wanted to go back to dig in that area. But, uh, you know, all of a sudden it stands up to my Gator, my F-350 pickup, and my usual Explorer get driven over it daily. And uh, it doesn't mean I won't have another rut wash out somewhere down the way, but it sure does solve the problem for me. Once again, you've been there and done that, and, and uh, you're passing it along to us, and uh, that's the way the that's the way we survive is with information <laughs> being passed down. That's uh, true. It has been true for uh, probably a few thousand, if not tens of thousands of years. John, you get out and enjoy this weekend, and uh, yeah, we have time to get Tana in here before we take a break. Good morning, Tana. Hey, good morning. Good morning. Sorry, what? Tana called back. That was my fault. Oh, accidentally cut her off. Tana, dial right back again. I'll take a few seconds here to, to talk about something worthwhile, like uh, oh, the fact that you, if you haven't fertilized in the past 90 days, weather is improving, uh, and it would be one of the best things you can do today using natural products like uh, Medina or Maestro Grow or Nature's Creation. You don't even have to work to water it in. Any areas that you're going to be working on reviving your grass, keep compost in mind. Uh, right now, you can probably put out bagged compost because it's much more fully broken down. And again, Nature's Creation is the line that I recommend. Here in a couple of weeks, it looks like we'll be cool enough that you can be buying it in bulk by, uh, by the truckload or however you can haul it. And uh, I can tell you, when it comes to restoring, rejuvenating, uh, lawns that have been just absolutely decimated by the heat and the drought, uh, nothing's going to speed that up faster than compost. Uh, have we got Tana back, Jimmy? Yes, she's Okay, ready. yeah. Good morning, Tana. I didn't do it. I promise it wasn't me. It was me. I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> got a good engineer that, that, that admits that buttons accidentally get pushed. Well, I'm glad you're back. How can I help today? Uh, okay, two things. Um I have a 16 by 16 inch planter. Mm -hmm. I have been putting a tropical hibiscus tree in there. Uh -huh. And it until we get several freezes, mm -hmm. is there, and there may not be such critter, 
but is there a shrub or a tree that I can plant in there that is going to flower at least once and stay green all year long that I can leave it out and not have to try bringing it into the garage? How much winter. sun? How much sun does it get? Um, morning sun, and is the term open afternoon shade or in yeah, other words, bright, bright shade or dapple shade? Yeah. Dapple um, shade. Yeah, there are, you know, there are various things that will stay evergreen if it doesn't get too cold. But uh, may freeze down, but then usually come back out. Uh, shrimp plant would be a good uh, candidate. Hardy, the hummingbirds love it. And I know you love hummingbirds. Uh, and that's yeah. a pretty plant, and they with its kind of coral-colored flowers. There are, um, you know, basically three colors: light blue, dark blue, and white in plumbago, which is going to stay green unless we get a really hard freeze, uh, in which case it still should come back out. Uh, if it's good and bright, you might get by, oh golly, just the, the evergreen part of it makes it a little bit tougher. Uh, but there's a plant called Mexican honeysuckle, justicia. It's related to shrimp plant. Uh, orange flowers, it blooms over a long period of time. There is a plant called Uriops, E-U-R-Y-O-P-S. Beautiful dark, dark green foliage and yellow flowers. The common name is African Shrub Daisy. Uh, that would do very well in the big pot, and I think you'd have enough light to get some blooms out of it. And uh, those those would be a few good starters. Now, if it can freeze down and then come back out, that opens up the possibility of things like uh, uh, several different salvias, the smooth leaf sage, salvia blepharophylla, um, there is a salvia coccinia freezes down and comes back out. Uh, there's one called smooth leaf sage freezes down and comes back out. Uh, other potential plants, uh, if you wanted something to plant around the side and let it trail over, pigeon berry is a native plant that's absolutely beautiful, goes away but then comes back out again. Um, Hi, golly, I'm sure there are others. Given a couple of minutes to think about, I, I could make other suggestions. The trailing lantana, not the bush lantana, but the trailing lantana, either purple or white, does well in the shade. Your bushy lantanas have to have more sun, but they are semi-evergreen, and they would flower. Again, they're limited to a sort of a lavender, purple, and white are the only two colors the trailing mm -hmm. form comes in, but... Uh, um, those are all good possibilities. I have a shrimp plant already, so huh? I'd try one of the others. Well, okay, that that takes you, care of number one. Okay. <laughs> so, and um, number two is not a question. It's uh, I I guess a, a plug for one of your sponsors, okay. and that is well, that's Wild Birds Unlimited. Uh-huh. Um, now, I don't go to the one you do. I go to the one out closest to me on 1604. Uh -huh. Right. But I had difficulty with white-winged dove mm -hmm. that would just come in, and they can decimate a feeder in, in oh. a matter of... <laughs> that, 
Yeah, well, too they are. They are a mess. They're we we call them. Oh golly, flying. Oh, different things. But yeah, white winged doves are a nuisance. I keep wanting to scare them out into somebody's field since dove season's open now. But uh, maybe that's a little harsh. But uh, did they did they fix you up with a feeder that excludes the doves? Yes, they did. It Good. is a it's a tube feeder, and I think it was originally designed for squirrels. But mm-hmm. it uh, it it goes around. There's a tray that they attach. They take off the original bottom, mm-hmm. put a tray on the bottom, and this uh, cage over it uh-huh. and now my white wing doves are ground feeders That's... and uh, yeah you know the, the cardinals and all of the other little birds will land on the cage itself mm-hmm. and then just reach down in or sit down yeah. in yeah. and it it's... is very watching new fledglings try to figure it out Oh yeah, it's it's like they land on it and their weight closes it off where they can get to it. If it's like the ones that I've seen, and it's a no, real it's, neat system. It's not that one. It's an oh, really? actual cage. It's an uh-huh. actual cage. Works better for me. I tried that other one, uh-huh. but this works beautifully. Well, Wild Birds Unlimited is a great company. Their stores are individually owned, and they all carry Wild Birds Unlimited products, but then they shop individually for their gift merchandise, and that's why they're all different. But uh, I think across the board, they're all staffed with people that are experienced birders, and uh, uh, just as they did with you, they can come up with solutions to a lot of problems. So uh, I'm so glad that, uh, that that they've made life more fun for you and a little bit tougher on the white wings. <laughs> They'll they'll survive, but your songbirds will be very happy without the competition, Tana. So, listen, I really appreciate it. It's always good to hear your voice as well. So, you have a great weekend, and maybe we'll talk again soon and talk about cooler weather. Oh, I hope so. Thank you, and goodbye. (laughs) Goodbye, Tana. All right, uh, Jimmy, let's run the commercials for that last break of the hour, and then we'll get back to more phone calls and gardening. South Texas Gardening with Bob Webster is on the air. News Talk 550 KTSA and FM 1071. Oh, man, this morning is flying by. can't believe that in just a few more minutes we'll be visiting with the Dirt Doctor, Mr. Howard Garrett. Right now we'll be visiting with Stella. Good morning, Stella. Good morning, Bob. Thank you for taking my call. Thank you for calling. Yes. Okay, Bob, I have a... uh, I have a... A mice problem in my garage. Uh-huh. Uh, we've been catching like five or six mice already this uh, yeah this week, and we caught the big rat already. He was huge, <laughs> and yeah, we caught him first. So now all these, I guess, all the babies. But uh, what should I do? I, I should I call a pest control? Um, we've been doing rat trap rat traps. That's how we've been catching them. Mm-hmm. Um, so any suge- okay? So I do have an aviary in the backyard, a uh-huh. big. Uh, it's a four by five by six aviary. Um, we had a problem forever ago with tunnel rats, and yep. my husband put some heavy metal uh, little uh, uh, netting, you know, underneath, and he fixed it all. And we, the the food isn't getting eaten, and the the birds are fine. 
So I know they're not tunnel rats, but okay. So around our foundation, I put um, uh, compost, real heavy compost, and I've noticed some holes uh, every you know couple places that I put it. I'm like, oh wow, there's a hole there now, and it wasn't. So what's going on? <laughs> there can be, you know, there can be a, a lot of different critters, everything from squirrels, which I call bushy-tailed tree rats, to roof rats, to ordinary mice, and they're all they're all nuisances, and if you have an aviary, they're probably coming to it for the bird seed because that's one of their favorite foods. Trapping is by far the best way because uh, uh, the rat poisons, uh, they they're, have gotten more effective, but that means... Also, that if dogs or cats get into them, it's sometimes much harder for your veterinarian to successfully treat them. So I, I do not recommend poisoning them. Now, um, I, the traps are are by far the best. Um, what I do, and believe me, I have a barn, and if I don't keep the rats under control, first thing you know, I've got rattlesnakes in there. So I do a lot of rat control. And I have some old... Uh, you know, they used to call them milk crates or like wooden crates that have kind of a, an open mesh wire bottom. Uh, you can create the same thing. I'm sure your husband sounds like a, a talented uh, woodworker. Yes. And what I like to do is make like a, oh, a cube uh, that the rats can get into uh, that I can just set down over the rat trap so that I know that there will never be you know, an animal that I don't want harmed to get into it, but the rats go right through the side and then they get caught by the traps. Uh, another thing that I have used in the past, I don't like them as well, uh, but you can get glue traps. And those are, there's one size for mice, there's another size for rats. I don't like using glue traps as much because unfortunately you can get lizards and things like that that I happen to like, you know, just fine. Yeah. So. I, I'm I'm big on the traps. Now, another thing yeah. that you can do is they make a plug-in device that creates an ultrasonic sound that uh, you don't hear. Now, dogs may yeah, hear it. My yeah, my kitty cat doesn't especially like it, uh, but the, it'll clear rats and mice out of the area. It simply plugs in and it creates a a level of frequency of sound that they hear that they will simply move out and go somewhere else. And uh, okay. that that may just relocate them to another area. You may still have to work to, uh, you know, to get rid of them. But if this is basically an open space, uh, because sound doesn't go around corners very well, but the simplest and easiest thing, and you may find them at a hardware store, you may, you may find them online, they're not really expensive, and uh, they will need to be out of the weather. You need to plug, you know, yeah, where you can plug it in. It does. It's only I only have a one car garage, and they're uh -huh. in there. They're, well, they're yeah. keeping the door closed, and they're not in the house. They're, I don't see any trappings or anything, uh, drippings or anything on uh, in the in the in the house yet. Yeah. Well, I mean, the I'm best saying. way the best way to run them out would be with one of these little ultrasonic devices. And again, you just plug it into the outlet, and it's sort of a uh, little, it's just a small unit that stays right there. Um, but yeah. if you're going to try to eliminate them, trapping is by far the best thing to do. Uh, mice, I get them with peanut butter. Um, yeah, we do. We do get them. We've been getting yeah. them with peanut butter. Peanut okay. butter or, or even with... The holes, 
what about the holes around my foundation? I mean, like, you know, I just, I just, yeah, I just keep filling them in. Um, it, and you know, if you have a game camera or something you can put out there, okay. it is most, well, it could be any number of things. It could be possums. It could be skunks. It could be squirrels. It could be rats. But, um, uh, again, are, is, do you have a crawl space under your house? Is your house on pier and beam or is it on a solid no, slab? No, 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 solid slab. Oh, uh, then I wouldn't worry about it. I just keep filling yeah. them in. They're not going anywhere. They're okay. going to be a problem. Just, uh, okay. Yes. Okay. If they open it up, and, you close it up. Okay. My next question, um, uh, I, do you know anybody that, uh, can rebuild an aviary for me? Uh, I've called birds unlimited, but they're for nature birds, so, uh, my aviary is getting kind of uh, tacky looking. I, I water my birds every day, you know, with this heat and the wood is getting old and I could repaint it sure. and stuff, but I've got, I've got a quite amount of birds in there. I don't know how it's even going to be done. I, I have like 50 birds. I would ask a good veterinarian that specializes in birds. Uh, Dr. Kirby's going to be out of town tomorrow, or I'd tell you to call his show at 11 o'clock, but um, uh, two weeks from now, uh, we do a show together on Sundays from 11 till 12, and you may know a good veterinarian, but they are the kind of people okay. that can probably give you the very best help in finding somebody that can uh, help build you an aviary. Stella, thank you for the call. Everybody else stick around. The Dirt Doctor's next here on KTSA Radio. South Texas Gardening with Bob Webster is on the air. Talk to Bob now, 210-599-5555. All right, but as you know, don't dial right this second. We'll have time for a few more phone calls the uh, last 30 minutes or so of the show, and then we do the skin tomorrow morning from 8 till 11. But uh, right now, it's time to talk with my friend, the Dirt Doctor. Good morning, Howard Garrett. Good day, everyone. Looks like another hot one around here, but then they say that uh, change is in the air, that it's actually supposed to cool off a bit and uh possibility of a little bit of rain i'll believe it when it happens but it's the most optimistic outlook we've had in a while yeah dallas i know has been probably worse than we have but st- very telling statistic about the summer is uh i think roberta said that she heard that we had had 17 days over 105 so uh that's a little hard on gardeners and on gardens uh yeah i don't doubt it yesterday was was bad again we got close to 110 i think here yesterday and then late in the afternoon big old clouds came right out of us it was looking good they just parted (laughs) at dallas and went around us we got a little bit of a drizzle this morning but didn't uh, catch too much i think some of the surrounding uh, uh communities around dallas got some pretty good rain last night I've got a friend that calls it the Bernie split. <laughs> they come right toward us, then they split and go around Bernie and reform on the other side. So one yep, more thing yep. we, one more good thing we have in common. So uh, we'll hopefully by this time next week when we talk, we'll we'll be able to be talking a little bit more about cooler weather and things to do. But uh, I know one thing you mentioned last week that you wanted to talk a little bit about was. Uh, palms and your favorite palm varieties because you've got such a beautiful needle palm there well they're uh, they're holding up really well it's one of the plants that um, is not suffering from this uh, heat at all and one of the interesting things 
about well, there's a couple things about the needle palm. One is it doesn't form a trunk. It's it's not a typical palm. It just mm -hmm. c continues to be a real bushy kind of thing, really dark green, and it'll grow in sun or complete shade all day long. And uh, it, any of you that are maybe listening that know any body farther north or if you're farther north it'll take 20 below zero so wow it's a quite it's a quite unique uh palm i think that uh it's uh, of all the palms and there's some good we have some good ones the sable palm and sable mine are both uh -huh. really good and tough here in texas can take the cold and everything but the needle palm is far and away the, the most durable of all the uh, palms the only negative is if you want a trunked palm tree you need to go with the sable uh mm -hmm. the texas sable palm it's beautiful and it it can take some really cold weather uh, this last couple of winters that we've had the last three uh depending on how the plants have been maintained i saw some of them even be pretty severely damaged but uh the other tough one uh, you have to be real careful about where to use it. People call uh -huh. it different names, Chinese fan palm and right. uh, Japanese fan palm and other names it gets. But it's the one that has the real thin uh, trunk. In fact, the trunk, it's funny, the trunk will be skinnier at the ground level than it is up at the uh, where the foliage is because of the, <laughs> the uh, old debris that, that builds up on the trunk. It gets real but it has dark green foliage and it's tough. It can take uh, well below zero uh, in, in most years here. But you got to be careful where you use it because it's going to end up looking like a tall matchstick kind of a thing. Right. Completely different than the needle palm. Yeah, needle palm is it, it's one I've never grown, and I need to plant someone there. Someone plant one somewhere around here just to. Uh, uh, just to show people the the other problem that you did, didn't mention is that they're hard to find. It's just not one of those palms that's real widely available in the nurseries. And uh, um, palms in general have been that way. And I don't know whether they're because they're a little slower growing, but uh, and and I'm with you on the sayballs, both the sayball minor and the slightly bigger one. That's that's our second favorite. And uh, most of the others, uh, now the windmill palm is, is a little more cold-hardy, but um, uh, the they... The windmill palm is actually the one I was yeah. referring to rather than fan palm. The Mexican fan palms, uh, these common names get kind of bad, mixed up, but the Mexican fan palm is probably what's sold here in Dallas the most. Mm -hmm. Really? And the last three winters have taken it out completely. It's not yeah. hardy at all. Well, I don't know. I guess it's easy to find, easy to get, and uh, grows quickly. Yeah, yep. but it's no good uh, cold-wise. There, there are actually two forms. Uh, botanically, it's Washingtonia, and uh, they're they're two different forms, and both of them. Filifera. I mean, one of yeah, Filifera and Robusta, and uh, yep. and the one is just one, not cold. Yeah, the other one. Neither one of them will last here in, in Dallas. They all died yeah. all the last here, three winters here. Here in San Antonio, the same way. But, uh, yeah. yeah, exactly the same way. And the one that's kind of in the middle that people still plant is the uh, so-called Mediterranean fan palm, the Shamarops. But 
Uh, it's it's got totally taken out in 2021, but uh, uh, the windmills came through really well. The Sayballs came through. Now, I tell you, I was down on the on what used to be the Guadalupe River, and now it's just a, a big ditch with a few little puddles of water in it. But uh, on uh, uh, you know, there are lots and lots of Sayballs growing up and down all there, and they're surviving. They they tend to be you know, fairly deep-rooted, but I tell you, I've never seen so many dead leaves with the drought. They still have a lot of good-looking foliage. They're still putting on new growth, so I think they're going to come through the drought okay, but uh, gosh, they, you know, they were down close to zero down along that river bottom in 2021, and it, like you say, it just doesn't doesn't send them back at all. They're outstanding where you want a trunk on a palm tree, but uh, I've got to try one of the needle palms. I've seen them, but um, I just just it's one of the ones that hadn't made it into the landscape yet. Well, I think one of the problems is it's very slow growing, and that's uh-huh. something you need to keep in mind uh, when you plant one. They tend to be expensive because to get them to a, a a nice size that people would like to have in the landscape, you know, it takes quite a while, so they end up being pretty pretty pricey that's the only other negative about it we we have we have good availability here in the dallas fort worth area really? because one of the other landscape architects uh that's been around as long as me uh, <laughs> that's a long time <laughs> yeah he's been specifying it on their projects for quite a while so when you have you have two d- designers putting them into uh, plans and of course i talk about them on the show yeah. Uh, some of the distributors have uh, been pretty good about about bringing them in. They do. The name comes from the fact that they do have a pin cushion of needles down at the crown, mm-hmm. and that's the only real negative, other than slow and, and expensive. But uh, that's a negative when you're working around because you can stab <laughs> yourself with those things if you're not careful. Oh, I'm sure. I'm sure it's another good place for rose gloves too. Now, some of the things yep. are so so sharp they'll even go through a, a leather glove. But I love those gloves where the the cuffs come almost up to your elbow, uh, working around palms, even even cycads like the sagos, which people mistakenly call palms. But uh, anything thorny like that, uh, again, that's kind of like a hoary hoary knife. It's just something that everybody ought to have, and if you're looking for a great gift to give to a gardener, a uh, pair of rose gloves is a real good one uh, to have when you're when you're dealing with thorny things like that. We're uh, we're pretty big fans of the ones called hands-on gloves too. They were invented to uh, rub your hands on your pets. Oh, really? You end up giving them a massage, and it also pulls the uh, Pulls the fur out. Yeah, they were on television, you know, national advertising for years, and I saw them uh, being sold for pets, and then they came up with the idea of selling them as a gardening glove, and I use them a lot. I use them when I'm handling firewood or when I'm doing pruning Uh or whatever. They have projections on the uh, uh, palms, and they're real thick. They're they're, uh, protected... uh, uh, with a couple of different layers, so you getting thorns all the way through to your hand and everything. They they protect you pretty well from that. But one of the coolest ways to use them is to do root flare exposure huh. around smaller trees. If you have fruit trees too deep in the
the ground, which almost everybody does. Mm-hmm. You can use them, rough it up with the hoary hoary knife, and then just rake it out with those gloves because of the projections in the uh, palms. But it's it, they're pretty good. I think uh, they're worth giving uh, a try as well. And and recommended by Tater, I'm sure. Oh yeah, <laughs> yeah, they love the way it feels. In fact, one of my listeners uses hers. I think they even sell a, a version as a equine. Uh, glove and she huh. uses it on her horses and she said her horses were having a lot of trouble kind of with some nervous problems and things like that and uh-huh. they uh, they really react to it very positively she says they just love being rubbed with those uh, uh, projections okay, and they're called hands-on gloves hands-on yeah. gloves i i don't know those and i guess i don't watch a lot of tv so i it's uh it's not one I'm familiar with, but I've got it written down to look into because it sounds like something we really need to have uh, for the pets as well as for gardening, and that that's outstanding. But uh, but back to the palms, yeah. They there are, and and we down here we have people that, uh, and I'm sure you do too, people that like to use palms in containers out around swimming pools and things, and then have some yeah. sort of structure to move them in uh, in the winter months, and of course. One of the most popular ones for that is Phoenix, uh, Phoenix Robolini, the pygmy date palms, which aren't at all cold hardy. But if you get them inside in the winter, they're okay. But, boy, you talk about a, a pin cushion down at the base. <laughs> they're, they're like the needle palms. You you want to wear eye protection and uh, good protection on your hands and forearms. But I'll be looking for the hands-on gloves. That's a great tip today. Yeah, check them out. See what you, see what you think. I think they're pretty good. One other question that I wanted to ask just your opinion on, and uh, we're both big believers in mycorrhizal fungus. Uh, there's just no doubt that some plants, of course, they, they don't uh, form that symbiotic relationship. But one thing that we noticed, we had some oak trees, both live oaks and red oaks, that back in the last big drought, which was 2011, they really were, were showing signs of the drought a good deal. After that drought was over, we treated those trees with a good mycorrhizal product. I think we probably put some Garrett Juice Pro on them at that time, which had mycorrhizae in it. And this year, those even though the drought is probably worse this year than then, uh, we have just not seen the drought stress on them. And the only thing we've done differently was, uh, was use the mycorrhizae. So wondered if... Uh, well, I have a question related to that, too, um, how you feel about that. And the other thing that I am seeing a bit of uh, is, you know, considering that people are using, we're not getting much rain. We haven't had decent rains. People are putting highly chlorinated water on everything in their landscape on a real regular basis. And I wonder if the chlorine is enough to do some damage to the mycorrhizae and other things. I know a little chlorine's uh, maybe actually a good thing, but do you think that we've seen enough of it that it may have had any impact on tender plants? Well, I think it makes a big difference. I, we've got an unusual situation here in our house because I didn't even realize it until we started doing some uh, work on the irrigation system uh, mm-hmm. Uh, here early in the summer, but almost all of our irrigation water goes through our filter system in our house, uh-huh. a charcoal a charcoal filter, and that takes out 
chlorine and uh, fluoride very well. It doesn't get the heavy metals and some of the other things that the reverse osmosis does. But uh -huh. I, I think it makes a big difference. Our trees have grown, you know, as faster, faster than anybody's here, and I think that's probably a big, big part of it. The uh, uh, the source of mycorrhizae that we use the most is just the Garrett Juice uh, Plus that Medina makes. I didn't really realize, I've always told people that the Garrett Juice Plus didn't have microbes in it, but and they don't really put any in it, it just develops <laughs> with that yeah. mixture of the, you know, the and the, there's also liquid humate and compost tea in it, which I really wasn't uh, completely uh, aware of, so... Uh -huh. That's really the only thing I use. The only thing I'm experimenting with right now, I think you've talked about it too, are the, the microbe products that Medina has are, uh, is a more concentrated, it's a, little dry, it's a dry product, and adding mm -hmm. it to the Garrett Juice mixture may be the very best of all worlds. Yeah. Well, that's, and, and Stuart told me one time that there are a number of things, and, and they they can't put them on the label without paying the state a tremendous amount of money for testing. So he said things that we legally can, we just put them in there and don't bother to put it on the label. And I think that's one thing that makes so many of their products so good. And uh, like he says, I can't tell you, you know, to say that we put mycorrhizae in there, but uh, we just happen to do that. But uh, it's why you don't see it on the label. It's why there are a lot more things in there and, and I like you. I think that's one reason they give such good results. Well, I think I think that's one of the reasons why everything we recommend works so well because all of the things, the rock minerals, the sugars, the corn, the azomite, all the things that we recommend stimulate biological activity in the soil, and all of them stimulate mycorrhizae. I think mycorrhizae develops probably as easily as anything if you mm -hmm. just aren't killing it. You know, it just naturally develops yeah. on the roots of plants, except for brassicas and, you know, amaranthus and a few. <laughs> and that's what's always been always so funny that Michael Amaranthus. Yeah. <laughs> oh, but go ahead. I'm sorry to interrupt. Uh, you know, Michael Amaranthus, it's funny. He knows more about mycorrhizae than anybody and doesn't develop on the amaranth plants. Yep, but uh, and it's it's fascinating, and I think they learn more all the time. Uh, Dr. Kirby's our great veterinarian friend, but he's fascinated by everything in nature and has really been researching mycorrhizae. And it's amazing the things that they are finding that are actually communicated from plant to plant through the mycorrhizal fungus, one way or another. And uh, uh, but. Like you just said, it, it all comes down to working with nature, and it's why we don't use the synthetic chemicals and, you know, the toxic things that mess up the, the natural balance in the soils. And that's what good gardening is all about, is building a good soil. And, and things like the Garrett Juice Plus and, uh, um, and other things. So we've got a company down here that actually packages a, a good mycorrhizal product where people just want the, you know, a straight, product that has, uh, I think it's got about 12 different species of mycorrhizae in it. And some of them are endo, some of them are ecto, but uh, I, I think it's one of the real keys to good health. And I just, I, I thought about 
wondered how much effect the chlorine would have on them and the fact that everybody's using so much more city water since we don't have any rainwater um i'm i feel like it's had an impact and it's interesting to, I, I to hear that you do the same so. yeah. yeah absolutely well another thing people need to be aware of right now most most uh, organic folks are but sometimes it slips by the, the chemical pushers are into their time period of pushing the pre-emergent uh, chemical uh, herbicides. Right. It, it, they've started recommending that first application now, and then they'll recommend another in two weeks and all that kind of thing. And talk about something bad for mycorrhizae, that stuff is. And one of the reasons why the people that still use the high nitrogen fertilizers have so much disease issues, you know, the uh, brown patch and gray leaf spot and various kinds of things is that they're using products that uh, are not healthy for that biological activity in the soil. That's why organic gardeners rarely have to deal with those issues. Exactly. Exactly. And, uh, and, and the other thing those synthetic products do is actually deplete the organic material in the soil, which we're trying so hard to build up the physical organic material as well as the organic life in the soil so yeah i hope people will you know take heed and uh, I, we we've started hearing the same thing on the on the synthetic pre-emergence and plus they just i don't think they work uh and if anybody really read carefully they'd realize they probably have to put them out six or eight times over the winter to get much effect and uh uh, bad for the soil, bad for the environment, bad for the bank account. I, uh, <laughs> we've just got to keep talking about natural things like corn gluten meal and compost. I think that, uh, and it's one thing that we're recommending to people as soon as it cools off just a little bit, that top dressing of the yard with compost. And my experience has been compost just in and of itself is a great natural pre-emergent. I think so, too. I think any of the organic products are. Corn gluten meal is the best because it's most concentrated. Yeah. And it's it's almost time. I don't know what you're, you're telling people, but I, I generally tell people to mark their calendar for the middle of September for the corn gluten meal application. But it's a crapshoot. You're just guessing <laughs> on what the timing would be. I do know some landscape contractors, maintenance-type contractors, they're using corn gluten meal more than once mm -hmm. and i was telling my audience uh last week about the fact that that works and you can get away with it but you have to remember one thing you got to be careful about uh this and that is if you use corn gluten meal two or three or even four times which some people are doing in the spring because they want that pre-emergent effect and it'll give right. it to you but you're using so much nitrogen, even though it's organic nitrogen, by using that technique, you probably are going to have some uh, uh, pathogen problems. So yep. you've got to be careful with that idea. Plus, you might waste a bunch of money, too. <laughs> not, to not to mention uh, the other big factor. Now, I, I got away from using too much of it in the vegetable garden for exactly that reason, but... On the other hand, if you're just doing it once, you're getting a double benefit because it does have, um, you know, a lot of fertilizer quality in it, and it is a natural product, so it's not depleting the organic material in the soil the way the 
uh, antibiotic compounds that Scotts and all these other people put in there, but they're they're really starting to push the chemical stuff around here, and it's just uh, some people listen, some don't. But I tell you, once once people get on our program, they rarely ever go back. Well, more and more people are talking. A lot of these national podcasts are starting to talk about more and more about about the uh, problems with Roundup and the problems with things like atrazine and. There's some scientists that are getting involved. You know, Dr. Carl Whitcomb has been preaching it for years, and he's not an organic guy. He's been preaching yeah. for years that you need to stay away from the urea products, that they can uh, do damage to plants at, at levels of parts per billion. Yeah. And he's he's been involved in some big lawsuits and uh, everything and people are still the state of Texas still uses atrazine on on the roads and uh, still uses you know rec- recommends Roundup and everything and it's just all kinds of problems uh, from those things and we we're getting away from them we're getting more and more people interested in uh, what the alternatives are but we just need to keep working on it because still today no universities are teaching this natural organic approach it's kind of it, it kind of surprises people when they hear that. They they think, well, some universities are bound to be teaching it because a lot of people are growing crops organically. As far as I know, there's there's not one university right now that has a complete uh, program of teaching you how to be organic. There's a University of Dirt Doctor that people can tune into. And- yeah. I tell people, you know, we've got, you know, 40,000, 50,000 students uh, every Saturday morning when you and I talk, and you've got a huge audience across the country on Sunday mornings. So uh, it's just, uh, I guess, the college of the air, or however you want to put it. But uh, um, it, I'll tell you one thing that I wondered about, and I, I want to talk about this at some point. I had a caller a couple of weeks ago that had taken a bag of kettle cubes, like many of us, uh, you know, feed to supplement cattle and they had she had put some around a couple of different plants and the plants properly folded up and died and said what could it be and I said well you know they they have a lot of uh, different compounds plant compounds in there I think it'd be real interesting to it unfortunately the tests are expensive to but to find out what kind of residues are in those uh, cattle cubes, and several different companies, Neutrina and a bunch of different companies, package them. But I'm I'm wondering if we're getting some herbicide in there because some of these things, you know, they just go right through the cow or right through the horse or whatever else. And I'm wondering if they get some of that through some of the supplements that people are feeding. I haven't tried it yet, and I'll have to, you know, find something out in the pasture or somewhere that I want to kill to see. But that. That was a new thought to me that I'd never really thought about as to whether there may be actually herbicide residue in there that uh, is well, increasing. Probably, can, probably can happen because it shows up in compost, you know, the uh, picloram yeah. and copyrolid uh, for sure, and then probably some of the other herbicides as well. The tests uh, are expensive, but if you can identify what you're looking for, in other words, if you you test those cubes for picloram or for specifically for some chemical, they're a whole lot less expensive than if you just say, test this this material yeah. and see if there's anything toxic in it. That, those tests are really expensive. Yeah. They don't know well, what the they're t- looking for. 
the test that I will do when I get a chance this fall is, is the same way I test hay, and that is just that five-gallon bucket. Uh, dump a bunch in there, fill it with water, let it soak for a couple of days, and then go pour that water over a broadleaf weed somewhere, obviously not a grass. But uh, the the old bucket test doesn't cost anything, and uh, that's that's how I've been telling people for years to test their compost, to test any hay or anything they're considering using as a mulch is, uh, you know, soak it overnight and go pour that water on a tomato plant or a dandelion or something like that. And that'll tell you in a hurry if you've got very much of the herbicide in there. Yeah, and the, the best plant probably to use for that is peanuts. Just plant some raw peanuts and uh-huh. get the peanuts going because they are so sensitive. If you uh, have any contamination in the uh, compost tea, the leaves will fold up uh, almost instantly. It really that, works fast. That's so. a fantastic suggestion. That thank you for that. That's that's a great idea. Yeah, that's, any of the legumes will work, but um, the peanut seems to be the uh, the best. I can't remember who told me that originally, but it it's kind of fun to grow some peanuts anyway. So uh, <laughs> you know, keep some growing around for you know decorative reasons, and you just have a built-in test. Uh, yeah. situation there for you anytime you want to test a product. And I don't know any plant that's more fascinating to kids to learn how peanuts actually grow. So, yeah, uh, yeah really good idea. Well, Howard, as always, it's such a pleasure. And we, we go down different paths every week because they say, well, how do you guys get together and talk about what you're going to talk about? And I say, we don't. There are just plenty of things that come up from our experiences week to week. And, uh, and I don't know, it's just so useful for my listeners, they, they tell me that our little segment's the, the best thing we do. So I really appreciate you always taking the time with us. It's always fun. We'll try again here in a week or two. <laughs> and and Diane has already texted me and said that she got some of the hands-on gloves, and her pets just absolutely love them. So uh, that's well, something good. we're, we're going to have to gonna have to do more of that. Well, listen, you guys have a great week out there, and uh Hopefully we'll be talking about some uh, cooler weather. Be one more reason for us to talk again next Saturday morning. See everybody soon. Thanks, Bob. Thank you, sir. Goodbye. Bye-bye. Goodbye. Mr. Howard Garrett is the Dirt Doctor, dirtdoctor.com, his website. And uh, he's on a lot of radio stations around the country. You can probably Google there if you're listening to me a long way away and uh, uh, you want to listen to Howard as well. He does his longest show is on Sunday mornings, but... uh, just lots and lots of good information there. And, of course, DirtDoctor.com is the best site on the Internet for gardening tips and organic solutions that really, really do work in San Antonio as well as uh, up in the Metroplex where uh, he resides. Anyway, it's uh, time for us. I'm sure Jimmy's got the lines open. We need to get a commercial break in here, and then we've got time for a few more phone calls. South Texas Gardening with Bob Webster. News Talk 550 KTSA and FM 1071. All right, back to gardening and uh, back to, oh gosh, just discussion of weather and things like that. It's uh, looking more and more optimistic like we will at least get some break uh, from the heat this week and uh, they keep moving the rain chances back and forth a little bit, but uh, that's what we, we so desperately need is uh, just some good moisture. Uh, Jimmy tells me we've got an open phone bank. So if you've got a question you want to get in today, be a real good time to dial 210-599-5555. 
And uh, again, as we were saying, uh, good time to fertilize. Your plants need the nutrition. As it cools off, things are going to be trying to put growth back on. If it's been 90 days or more since you fertilized, it's, it would be a real good idea to feed your trees, your shrubs, your ground covers. Uh, give everything a good a good dose of organic fertilizer. Uh, other things you can do, a good time to put out dry molasses. Stimulates microbial activity, softens the soil, does lots of other good things. And uh, um, we're talking about around our oak trees, putting out cornmeal once again, or actually more corn water tea. Lots of good evidence out there that it does suppress uh, oak wilt problems and uh, helps the tree build its own defenses. So uh, just lots of things to get out and do. Now, don't be working out in the heat. It's going to be hot this afternoon. Tomorrow we're going to get a little bit of a break. And then hopefully by uh, Monday and Tuesday we'll be looking at significantly lower temperatures. But, uh, <coughs> excuse me, you have a, a lot of things I know that have been piling up over this summer when it's just been too hot to get out and enjoy the yard. So uh, be prepared. Pick up that uh, dry molasses. Pick up that cornmeal. Pick up your good quality fertilizer and be ready to get them out. Nice thing about uh, those things is you don't have to water in the organic fertilizers. Of course, they don't really go to work until they get watered, so it is good to water at some point, but it's not like the synthetic stuff that a lot of people promote that, boy, somebody be, better be right behind you with the garden hose or you're going to end up burning things. Um, other things, <clears throat> as it cools off, it's going to be important to get uh, things into the vegetable garden. If you're hoping to get in a fall crop of bush beans, few more bush beans, few more squash, yes, there is time because you can have produce in as little as 30 days. If you're going to grow a fall crop of edible pod peas, what we call sugar snaps, or oh, it goes by various different names. One of our callers earlier was bringing up uh, how good those things taste and the fact that you truly can usually get a good fall crop in because... Uh, you, you do need to get them planted early because cold weather, up to a point, down uh, certainly into the low 20s, cold weather will not bother the plants, but it does destroy the flowers. So if we're going to get fall production, you need to get those things planted pretty soon. Probably in the next week or two, you'll start seeing broccoli and cauliflower and various other cool weather plants available at the nurseries. And uh, those are also things that you want to go ahead and get in the ground. Some things from seed, it's way too early to plant spinach. It's uh, way too early, I think, to plant most lettuces. But a couple of weeks of cooler weather, and we can start talking about the root crops, the lettuces, chard, uh, uh, things, bok choy, things like that. It is a while before we'll be talking about spinach because it really does like very cool soil, which uh, we it's going to be a while before our soils cool down. So, um, But anyway, just get your good garden calendar out. If you need a good garden calendar over our way, we'll happily give you our suggestions as far as planting dates. But uh, even when you're not going to be planting, get the soil ready. Get some compost down. Get some fertilizer down. Uh, I like to put down, you know, we're going to be planting individual plants, put a cup or so of fertilizer, then a mound of compost over the top, where you're going to be planting things in rows, just put a band of fertilizer down. And again, a band of fertilizer on top of that. Water it a few times. You'll be amazed how soft and workable your soil is uh, when the weather is good to plant. And that's coming along pretty shortly. I know we're, I think we're all just so anxious to see it because it's been such a hot, dry summer. But uh, um, it's, uh, gardening weather is coming and coming in the near future. 
Uh, you're going to start seeing some cooler weather bedding plants. Do not jump the gun on pansies. Uh, it's way too early for those things. I don't think you probably see many cyclamen yet, but uh, uh, there are things out there that <laughs> that you can certainly be planting before long. Uh, another week or two will be time for petunias, time for dianthus. Not too far behind that, it will be uh, time for uh, snapdragons and some things like those. Um, okay, Jimmy tells me that we, I tell you what, Jimmy, let's get our last commercial break of the show in, and then we'll come back and uh, I guess Tana is back to ask another question. And Kevin, we'll be right back with more gardening. South Texas Gardening with Bob Webster is on the air. News Talk 550 KTSA and FM 1071. All right. Can't believe we're down the last segment of the show today. It's sure gone by in a hurry. Remember, we do this again tomorrow morning from 8 until 11. Um, I will tell you up front that I believe Dr. Kirby is doing some continuing education tomorrow, so uh, it will be a best of show. So have to wait till next week to get your questions in for him, but uh, I'll be there for you 8 till 11 tomorrow morning. Right now, let's get to the phone lines. I believe Tana has another question or comment, and then it'll be Kevin. Good morning, Tana. Okie dokie, your discussion about uh, corn gluten meal spurred another question with me. Okay. Um, I have been using the stone ground corn meal uh, to soak my toe, which has the fungus stuff. Now, mm-hmm. I've been doing that uh, every other day. Is that too often? No. No, in fact... Uh, it, and, but, and what you're doing, you're not really soaking it in a watery solution. You're just soaking no, it on yeah. the moist material. But uh, uh, every day, there's no such thing as too often. What you're doing is just generating the trichoderma fungus, which is what knocks out damaging fungi, including athlete's foot and toenail fungus. My, uh, I have a niece who's a doctor down in Mexico, and she was selling me and a very good one. Graduated top of her medical class, as a matter of fact. But she said, Uncle Bob, said that's nothing new. We've been doing it in the colonias for generations now. So uh, it's let's just say it's certainly time-tested. Okay, well, now I have been adding water to what I throw out. Mm-hmm. And instead of throwing it out, I have been putting it... Um, around the mulch area mm-hmm. of my uh, fig tree because uh-huh. it was not doing too good. Uh-huh. Now, can I, can I put too much around no. a tree? No, you'll never hurt anything. You, you may see some fungus growing on the soil, but it's not harmful in any way, form, or fashion. So sounds like a great use of it. Okay, and... You had mentioned, oh, last week, I believe it was, that the drought has been really bad on burr oak. And mm-hmm. I, I'm having lots of trouble trying to keep my burr oak happy so I can put some of that around there, too. Oh, absolutely. The burrs, burrs aren't as bad as the post oaks, but uh, uh, it's, you know, trees of all sorts, especially younger trees, uh, this drought is... Is the best is the worst we've had in a long time, and uh, uh, we do it around live oaks and red oaks because it makes them much more resistant to oak wilt, which bur oaks don't get. So it's for a different reason, but it would certainly, you know, it's going to help the soil. It's going to help the mycorrhizae. Uh, it's it's going to be good for any tree you put it around, including your bur oak. Well, this bur oak is roughly 
about 20 years old, but it mm-hmm. was a good distance out. And so for several years, it never, ever, ever got any additional water. Mm-hmm. But recently, um, Scott put in a spigot for me, so mm-hmm. I can get water out there. And it is the most pathetic-looking tree you've ever seen. <laughs> well, it's it's actually not bad that in its early life it didn't get any help because it was forced to develop a much more widespread root system. Uh, there are a lot of trees suffering in people's yards because they grew up, and, and my old friend Rob Griesbach, a USDA guy, told me a long time ago, he said a plant will only grow as much roots as it takes to support itself. And there are a lot of... Uh, bottle babies, I guess you'd call them, uh, of trees out there that have grown up with uh, just getting all the water they needed from somebody's sprinkler system, and then a drought sets in, and they don't get as much water, and they really suffer. That tree that's been out in the pasture or wherever that really had to fight for whatever water it could get, that had to put its roots out to the next county, they're the trees that are going to come through the drought with the least problems. So where we can help them, we certainly do our very best, but... uh, um, there, there are a lot of trees that are, are showing damage, just so to speak, because of the way they've been raised and not having had to develop as widespread a root system. So, drought is teaching a lot of people a lot of things. Okay, then. Well, um, hopefully this coming week, um, someone will take me out and I can get some of that what the acemite. Mm-hmm. So I wanted to put that around him too. That would be a wonderful product. Now, you don't have to be like the lady that called me from Oklahoma said she'd put an entire bag, probably a bigger bag, around one tree. Uh, that's a little bit of overkill, but you've got enough things in your garden, and every one of them will benefit from Smazemite. Sir, I thank you most kindly for your boundless knowledge. Thank you. Well, it's, it's hard, hard fought and comes mainly from mistakes that I've made over the years, Dana, so... Uh, you know how that goes, and uh, I do appreciate your calls and support. So you get out and have a wonderful weekend. Okay, bye. Goodbye. Uh, looks like Kevin is up next. Good morning, Kevin. Good morning, Bob. Uh, I finally found some azomite. What's the proper application in a vegetable garden? And did you get the powdered form or the granular form or the chunky form? Uh, granular. Okay. I It... Uh, I don't, it's not a product that you're ever going to overuse. And we're still kind of trying to figure out how often we need to apply and how much to use. So um, the only only danger you run into if you use too much of it is they don't give it away. It, it is a little pricey. But I would suggest uh, if on plants where you're planting individual plants, uh, like tomatoes or peppers or moving into the season now, broccoli, cauliflower, and things like that, I just use a handful around each plant. Just, you know, put it on the surface of the ground. If you want to put it out before you plant, then you can kind of work it in a little bit as you plant the plants, which is probably overall maybe a little better. But we've had extremely good results just putting it on the surface of the ground and watering. So I'd put just a handful of it around individual plants where you're planting something like snow peas, um, I just would kind of, again, grab a handful and just kind of dribble out a row of it, big enough to see, but, you know, not, not a huge mound of it or anything. Then maybe a little bit of compost on top of that. 
it looks like reapplying every four to six months on things that are really sensitive to yellowing is going to be about what's needed. Most plants, I think, will probably get away with putting it out maybe once a year or so. But there are a handful of things that are just really, really prone to yellowing, like periwinkles, for instance. Uh, and to some extent, uh, well, a few of the other bedding plants, too, that it's just been like a miracle worker on. And where most plants, that once they yellow, if you put something on to correct it, the yellow leaf uh, falls off, and then the new leaves that come out are green. With the periwinkles in places that we've used azomite, the leaves that are yellowed actually are greening up again, so the plant doesn't have to put on a whole new set of leaves. Now, if they're yellowed from lack of water, it, it wouldn't work. But uh, I would very much like to hear what your uh, results are with the azomite, because it's just, uh, we've seen it do things that, uh, oh, green sand and other you know, micronutrient mixes just can't even begin to do, and yet it's not outrageously expensive, and it's certainly not dangerous, and so easy to use. So I'll look forward to hearing what you learn with it. Sure enough, I appreciate it. Thank you, sir. Oh, well, you're certainly welcome. I appreciate the call this morning. Thank you. And uh, let's see here. No, I don't think we have any more calls. Uh, two or three other things that uh, I will mention is that we are getting close to time for planting cool weather annuals, prepare the soil, do what we talk about for vegetables, put out some fertilizer, put out some compost, put out some azomite. If you're planting, uh, well, just about anything, certainly wouldn't hurt to put out a little bit of the whole ground cornmeal too. Most of our winter crops don't have root problems with any of the fungi, but uh, certainly wouldn't hurt if you're putting, if you're planning on planting a few more squash. And again, we've got time. Uh, here we are in early September, but I've had uh, crookneck squash producing as little as 21 days. If you want to squeeze in a few more squash in the vegetable garden, that's one thing I would very definitely add to your soil preparation would be uh, some of the whole ground cornmeal as well. But um, just get that soil ready. Fertilizer and compost, fertilizer and compost. You just can't go wrong with that combination. And uh, if it does indeed cool down, like they're saying, we'll be next weekend we'll be talking about planting broccoli and cauliflower and Brussels sprouts. We'll be talking about planting root clumps like radishes and carrots and beets and things like that. So we're just right on the cusp of, uh, of a whole new planting season. I do want to caution everybody, though. I'm seeing places where people are actually hurting plants with too much water. And a good general rule, if you're unsure about whether a plant needs to be watered, of course, you know, the old one-knuckle test is the best way to, uh, to go. Let the soil be dry and knuckle deep before you water again. But in general, if a plant is droopy in the evening, it does not necessarily mean it needs water. It may be drooping just from the excessive heat, the breezes that we've been getting. Uh, if it is still droopy again in the morning, then it definitely does need to be watered. But uh, droop in the afternoon, feel the soil before you water, because some folks are watering too often. And what that does, of course, is too much water in the soil drives the oxygen out. Oxygen goes out, the roots die. And then you wonder why plants are having a hard time. We're seeing that on redbud trees. We're seeing on a number of things that really don't like too much moisture in the soil. Um, so when you water, water thoroughly. But just be sure that your plants need that water before you put it on. Don't forget to fertilize your house plants as well. I know we get into doing so many other things. But if you're growing Dracaenas and Chefleras and uh, all the different palms and Chinese evergreens, 
Those plants like a bit of food regularly. Be using a good liquid product like the new liquid fish blend or the Hasgrow plant from uh, Medina. We see so many plants come in that have some issues and uh, people say, what's going wrong? And I say, well, how often are you feeding and what are you using? And just get this kind of uh, blank look and they say, oh, well, I haven't been fertilizing. All plants will do better if you fertilize them, whether it's house plants, whether it's orchids, whether it's patio plants in pots, or certainly the things in your landscape. In pots, I do usually like the liquid fertilizers better than the dry. And uh, again, there's several good ones out there. My favorite happens to be, well, the, my two favorites happen to be Hester Grow Plant by Medina and the new Liquid Fish Blend by Medina. Those are both products that I would water the soil first on your house plants and then apply the liquid fertilizer. Uh, in the yard, in the uh, where you're getting ready in the garden for both flowers and vegetables, good dry products are excellent. Medina, Maestro Grow, Nature's Creation, there are lots of good ones out there.